I recently heard a story out of the Shenango River Valley in Pennsylvania. It's about something called the Shenango Dog Boy. Legend says that it's covered in dark hair and that when it sees you, it lets out a low growl followed by a high pitch like scream. Let's just say I don't think that's man's best friend anymore. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of... Welcome to the Just A Story Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. This week we are continuing our Halloween themed month. The I Put a Spell on You month. Yeah. So before we get into it, we do want to thank all of you for coming back. I want to thank everyone that's left ratings and reviews or shout outs on Twitter. All of your names have gone into the magical creepy mystery hat. It's a witch's hat. It's a sorting hat. It's a wizard sorting hat. It's a, it's a magical mystery hat. Sexy cat hat. Those are just ears that you wear with lingerie. <laughs> I've seen Mean Girls. I'm going to remind everybody that you can leave a rating, review, or shout out on Twitter or other social media, and that will get you entered into our Halloween contest for a free t-shirt, which will be announced at the end of the month. So we have a few more weeks to get those in. And we do want to also remind you that you can head over to our website, JustStoryPod.com, check out all of our fun sources and artwork and some of that merch and shirts that we just mentioned. Right. There's a link on our site, and it will take you right to where we keep the shirts and stuff, and you can have one of your very own. Yay! You can also find a link there to our Patreon page. And Patreon is a way for you to donate to the show if you are interested in helping us get more knowledge to share with you all. Because it's really all we want to do, ever. Really. We're weird. (laughs) That and curse people. I do want to curse people. Who are you cursing today, Sam? Well, I thought we would do a little brainstorming session in case people are having trouble thinking of who they need to be cursed. Okay. So, like, I was thinking of people who I think deserve to be cursed. And, like, one group in particular is people who say jokes from stand-up comedy and don't say that they're from stand-up comedy, like, act like they just came up with them. So you mean my best friend, David? Yes, okay. specifically. But I hear other people do it, too. Don't curse David. I wouldn't. He's, He's already cursed. <laughs> He's got funny. He must have angered a gypsy. Or seven. Many years or ago. Or 56 gypsies, as yeah. that one song says. How about person breaking up with their significant other at the coffee shop very loudly? Or just like saying really uncomfortable things really loudly at a coffee shop that you know they mean for you to hear? 
that you like a stranger like obviously you don't know them because that would be different that would just be talking how about our neighbor's puppy (laughs) oh i don't curse puppies i might kick this one if he doesn't stop though Although, you know what? It does seem appropriate to have this little puppy in the background. Hopefully, I'll edit most of it out. Because today, today, my dear Samantha, we are talking about... Puppies. Kind of. Dog boy. Perfect. The Shenango Valley dog boy. Where's Shenango Valley? It sounds exotic. Northwestern Pennsylvania. That's exotic. (laughs) So, this is a story that is a local legend around pennsylvania so one informant says when i heard the howl i was scared because i didn't know what it was she was told by her parents of a dog boy who roamed the hills and farmlands now he lived in an abandoned farmhouse nearby with a coven of witches a cut a whole he had a whole coven of witches. yes they would call on him to protect them in their lands seems like he would have gotten a dog man he, this one was easier to paper train Now, their parents would always tell them to be home before dark, or the dog boy would get them. Okay. Now, one day, they decided to go and try to see it. Now, she says, as we looked over to the house, we saw the dog boy sitting about ten feet from the house. And when we saw him, he saw us too. He had dark hair all over his face and his body. He was three to four feet tall, blue shirt and blue shorts on. We really couldn't tell what he was. It was like he was a human. But he had hair all over him. But he resembled a dog. When he ran, he was kind of hunched over and he was fast. And he was right behind the house before we could blink an eye. So my favorite thing about that story is that he's going all Teen Wolf. Like he's wearing like Michael J. Fox Teen Wolf. He's not wearing a basketball jersey. Nobody is wearing clothes on top of his fur. That's classic werewolf No, then they walk out. A flannel Flannel shirt, torn up jeans. Where are you seeing these werewolves? Like every Halloween costume ever. I thought they like turned into something more like alien, like Ridley Scott alien. That's your modern werewolf. Well, the old time werewolves were just wolves. Maybe they wore waistcoats. And top hats. Maybe a monocle. <laughs> Very refined. But what a werewolf looks like changes from who's telling it. Where they are, and what time, like any good legend. Well, you're right. That's true. Fair enough. And so this legend, no one knows exactly where it comes from. Now, where I got this informant story is not a uh, academic text, per se. Where'd you find this? Uh, Destination America. Oh, God. They had the best bad shows. <laughs> the best bad shows. It is a true legend from the area. On the show, <laughs> the historian... Mm-hmm. that was on there was like and maybe it's from the 50s that's as far back as we can trace it yeah okay so you traced it to like 1760 or something i did we'll get there now there are a lot of stories about dog boys and dog men and werewolf like creatures of course all over the world but let's talk about specifically here here being the exotic locale of northwestern pennsylvania yes cool it's quite exotic this episode is brought to you by Northwestern Pennsylvania Travel Association. And under Mifflin. Get your paper and werewolves all in one location. Now, there are much older tales in the area. There's a tale of a werewolf, which takes place in Northumberland, Pennsylvania, in a historic area found in 1772 and located in a fork of the Susquehanna River. In 1899, some townsfolk of Northumberland suspected a local hermit as a werewolf. Mm. 
who allegedly killed and ate sheep in the area. Now, after a wolf was shot and killed by a sheep herder, it's said the dead wolf regained human form as the hermit. I would like to see that uh, autopsy report. Now, there are even reports back in the 1800s of loggers being attacked by dogmen. Okay, well, this is an American werewolf in Scranton or whatever. So, where... The story didn't start there. Well, let's let's put a pause on... Put a pause on it? That's Our right. pause? Oh, Our we're going to put a pause yeah. on lovely northwestern Pennsylvania. Which the, you should visit. Take the train. The gateway to the rest of whatever's over there. <laughs> Can you tell we've not traveled middle America much? Pennsylvania's not middle America. You really haven't done there. I don't know. I think it's where they keep like real Americans. But let's go and look at some other werewolf folklore for a second around the world let's go carmen get your hat one of the oldest werewolf stories comes from the greeks and romans Mm -hmm. and it is of king lycaon so roman writer pausanias said i for my part believe this story it's been a legend among the arcadians from of old and it has the additional merit of probability For the men of those days, because of their righteousness and piety, were guests of the gods, eating at the same board. The good were openly honored by the gods, and sinners were openly visited with their wrath. So one might believe that Lycaon was turned into a beast. Okay, since we're talking werewolves, I'm going to assume that the beast that he was turned into was sort of wolfy. Yeah, so this is actually the opening story of Ovid's Metamorphosis. Cool. Well, he does, you know, metamorph. He does metamorph. Metamorph? Yeah, I'm going with it. Sure. I just fortified that. Yeah. A episode about transformation would not be complete if we did not have Ovid in there. So this is way, way, way back in time, even to the Greeks and Romans. So Zeus is troubled that the age of iron has plunged mankind into greed and violence. Mm-hmm. And so Zeus takes human form to go check it out. Okay. As he is wont to do. All sorts of forms, but yeah. Yes, he's going to observe the, quote, children of blood. Ooh. So he goes to visit Lycaon, the Arcadian tyrant. Zeus thinks he's a tyrant? Oh, yeah. Oh, he's got to be bad. Yeah, there's nothing good in there. So the story is actually Zeus recounting this tale to the other gods. Kind of like, can you... Frickin' believe what this guy is up to. Why I oughta. Then as the last shadows gave way to night, I entered the inhospitable house of the Arcadian king. I gave them signs that a god had come, and the people began to worship me. At first, Lycaon ridiculed their piety, then exclaimed, I will prove by a straightforward test whether he is a god or a mortal. The truth will not be in doubt. Zeus is like, sounds good to me, dude. The tyrant king takes a hostage opens his throat with a knife, and made some of the still warm limbs tender in a seething water, roasting others in the fire. He's cooking a person? Yeah. To prove a point? Oh, yeah. Tyrant. Fair. No sooner were they placed on the table than I brought the roof down on the household gods with my avenging flames. Fair. The tyrant king runs. Out, like, dodges the roof falling and gets out. He himself ran in terror and reached the silent fields, howled aloud, frustrated of speech, foaming at the mouth and greedy as ever for killing. He turned against the sheep, still delighting in blood. His clothes became bristling hair, his arms became legs. He was a wolf, but kept some vestige of the former shape. 
There were the same gray hairs, the same violent face, the same glittering eyes, the same savage image. One house has fallen, but others deserve to also. So this is Zeus noting that mankind's kind of terrible and that this one guy kind of got his comeuppance, but other people have it coming too. Yeah, so he does the whole great flood thing. Oh, that's a classic God move. Whenever you piss him off. But really what we think of as werewolves nowadays, especially kind of our, the European folklore sense really does not come from that kind of Greek tradition. It's more of a Germanic Flemish, that area. That's true. And that may be just because the Grimm's are writing it down. Maybe so. But it really was well rooted in this region. And so within the Flemish, Dutch, and Germanic traditions, there are four major tale types involving werewolves. Okay. And that's four. not T-A-I-L. That would be punny, but it's not. Interestingly, there was a huge early enthusiasm for folk culture, Volk culture, sort of in this region. Right. We're familiar. We've talked about that. The Grimm's, they were out collecting that Volk Yes, nationalism and whatnot. And that led to great things. So many. Not the only reason. <laughs> but after World War II, they're kind of like, you know, this, this folklore has been corrupted by Nazis. Oopsie. <laughs> like, they thought that it had been contaminated. Like, that some of the propaganda had worked its way into the folklore and it wasn't pure anymore. Interesting. But... Doesn't that just make it part of the folklore? They said no. They hit the pause button. They're like, Nazis don't count. Nazis don't count. (laughs) They don't get to have folklore. (laughs) No Nazi, no Nazi, no Nazi. (laughs) Oh my God, you're so right. We really don't like these guys. Really, guys. Because technically, even though Nazis, we hate those guys. We do hate those guys. It still is. Folklore. From the technical sense. (laughs) But I think what they meant was the traditional. Right. Like it wasn't the, the same sweet, pure. Well, And then you get back to those German ideas of purity, and that's a whole other thing. (laughs) So let's move on. But they did. They hit the pause button, and it was not really studied, especially the stuff like werewolves, which were inherently kind of violent and shapeshifty and sketchy. Those sorts of things, especially not studying those. So it was like not studied again until fairly recently. But in the old text that described the different types of werewolf stories in the region, there are four main tale types. And they include the oven, the werewolf lover or husband legend, the wound legend, and the backrider. The backrider? Okay, that one's told very commonly, but it's really unusual compared to the rest of werewolf lore. It's the outlier. Okay, what what is a backrider? Are they like wearing cloaks? Is that the kind of thing? So this is the story. My father told me his mate, he had said... To him, he wasn't afraid of anything, neither by day nor by night. But once he came to me, and then he was really frightened. And then I said, what's the matter, man? I will tell you something, John Rot. I went to Lobeth and to Didum in the middle of the night. And my dear man, I didn't suspect anything. And then there was a murmur behind me as if a wind arose and something flew onto my nape. I could see a paw hanging over my shoulder. What? And sweat ran from my neck and ears. I didn't know what to do and thought, God, what's happening to me? And then I arrived at the church and died him in front of the old church. And then he jumped off of me. And then I lost him. I went home with dread in my shoes. And my dear man, 
I have been ill and miserable for eight days because of it. I told many people this. They heeded it all and no longer dared to pass that road at night because of what happened to me. So he just hitched a ride on someone's back? Yes, this is a hitchhiking werewolf. Huh. Is this like an ancient story? Sort of. That story is from 1976. Oh, ancient folklore. Ancient folklore. But does it have ancient roots? It does, but not with werewolves. Now, werewolves have been around for a while, but it seems that this comes from sort of a mistranslation or some artistic license run rampant. Gone rogue. In the older versions of this hitchhiking story, this thing jumping on your back and riding... It's a ghost hmm. or another supernatural creature that is specifically designated to do this. Makes a little more sense than a werewolf jumping on yeah, your back. Yes, and just hanging out and not eating you. That's weird. I love how much folklore is from mistranslation. <laughs> and people would often tease children by telling them that this had happened. And then they'd like chase their tails trying to see, you know. They'd chase like, their tails, yeah. Well, that yeah. was my wording. <laughs> But yes, a really creepy idea. Oh, yeah, definitely. Because you can't see what's like directly behind you. You just feel the hairs in the back mm. of your neck raise. Um, but according to Rock, who is a folklorist from Limburg, he'd studied werewolf legends in this region. He says that back riding was an example of a disintegration of the werewolf legend and sort of a blurring of boundaries between these disparate figures. And it was not originally part of the werewolf legend. So where are some of the more original tail types? We've got the wound, and that is a classic. Classic cat's paw. Mm-hmm. It's where, you know, the the principal, the main character, or one of them, is injured in some way um, while in the form of an animal. Here, a wolf. Uh, in America, you see this a lot with cats. Cat's paw, obviously. And then, you know, they've lost a hand, and then they go and find that someone... They know who's lost a hand and put it together that this was the cat or this was the werewolf or this was the witch. The witch. We'll see that one come up again. And then you have the oven stories. What's an oven story? Is this a Hansel and Gretel thing? It would actually make more sense if it was a werewolf and not a witch, but whatever. So this one is the werewolf of Altmarin, and it was collected by F. Asmus and O. Noop. So about 60 years ago in Altmarin, there lived an old man by the name of Gust. He too possessed a wolf strap with which he had brought about much damage and misery. Finally, the strap was taken for him and burned. Three times the baking oven was heated up, and three times the strap was thrown into the glowing fire, but each time it jumped back out of the flames. Nor would water damage the strap. It always returned. However, Pastor from Fitzroy finally burned it up. When Goose died, the pastor of Altmarin could not finish the Lord's Prayer, and they called on the pastor from Fritzrow, who later said, away, away with it. When they tried to lower him into the earth, the grave opening was too small, so the pallbearers had to trample him down with their feet. For a long time afterward, there was always a hole in the grave mound, but it will have closed up by now, for grass is growing over the story of Goose K for a long time now. I get a little flare at the end. It's good. So is that is that German story? or? It's from Poland. Okay, so it's in that okay. region. And so usually in older werewolf tradition, they have something, something that turns them into werewolves. Right. And he has a belt. Right. And the other things, you can have like a cloak. Yes. Yeah, so now I'm thinking that maybe Ed Gein heard these stories Uh-oh. and he had a nipple belt. <laughs> he wanted to become a giant boob. Yeah. Like I said. Which is a Philip Roth 
story. Okay, and then you have the legend of the torn garment, or the wolf husband, or the wolf lover, or the hungry farmhand. All the same story. That's a lot of people. It's a lot of people, but it's a really consistent narrative structure, and the twist remains about the same. It's a widespread folktale. This is from Antwerp. Werewolves are punished people who change into an animal at night. That lasts for about an hour, and then they turn into humans again. Once, there was one, and he was on his way home with his girlfriend from a fair at ball. He kept talking about ghosts, and the girl did not like it very much. And when they'd been on their way for a while, he had to go and defecate in the bushes. He told his sweetheart, when you encounter something, just throw off your apron. And when this guy was sitting in the bushes, he felt an evil rising, and the girl saw something approaching, and she threw her apron at it, and then it was gone. But he returned, and he asked whether she was, had seen anything, and she said, yes, she had. It was an animal, but I can't tell what kind. And the boy laughed about it. But I did throw my apron off, she said. And when they got home, he stayed to have a drink. They had an inn, and she noticed that there were still pieces of apron between his teeth. She became ill because of that and died. And it is a very classic werewolf legend that is throughout this region. I don't feel like he normally defecates in the bushes. He just like goes off. I mean, that is a logical explanation. And I love these because they're from primary informants. Like these are people telling him. And so they keep all the little markers of like pause and think. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I bet this guy added the defecate part. <laughs> I feel like that was a woman telling it for sure. For sure. He was just being a dick. He was talk, telling ghost stories, trying to scare, and then he wouldn't take a shit, and he turned into a werewolf. And then this also leads naturally to the hungry farmhand cycle. And it's usually about laborers, mowers, farmers, etc. Although in the Grimm's version, it's a pair of soldiers, but it's usually two men. So they are out in the fields, and it's the afternoon, and they're going to go lay down and take a nap. And one of them is pretending to be asleep, and the other one is also pretending to be asleep, but they don't know it. And one of them sneaks off and puts his wolf belt on Mm. and turns into a werewolf Mm. and goes and eats usually a foal, sometimes a mare, and sometimes a pregnant mare. Oh. But a whole horse. Okay, so hungry. In wolf form. And then he comes back. And this happens. One of the farmhands who had pretended to be asleep had seen everything, but told the others nothing of it. Not long afterwards, the werewolf returned and the others woke up. When they were lying near the fire, the werewolf shuddered and said, I don't know why I feel so nauseous. Well, said the farmhand, who had stayed awake, who wouldn't be nauseous with a whole foal inside him. You're lucky, the other one said, that you did not tell me this before. With this words, he slipped on his belt and instantly became a wolf and rushed into the woods. And this is the last his comrades ever saw of him. It's great. So there are a lot of variations on the werewolf story. Clearly, at least four so far. At least. So in the Serbian language, the word that's used for werewolf is synonymous with the word for vampire. And it means a man who returns from his grave for a purpose of fornicating with his widow. Oh my goodness. I was about to say, when you were like, a man who returns from his grave is like a a revenant. No, 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 like a sex ghost. (laughs) The Serbs and Slavs and the Polish... Felt that any child born with hair, a birthmark, or a call. A call. Like the thing over their face. Amniotic something. Yeah, like amniotic membrane. Has like shape-shifting abilities. Well, they could, you know, see into the future. Why couldn't they, you know, become a bird? And fly so far, far, far away. In Latvian folklore, there's a vlkasis. Cool. 
I agree with that pronunciation. <laughs> it was transformed into a wolf-like monster, and it could be benevolent at times. Sometimes it could be a good werewolf. And a lot of people think that since this story is so common, that it has a very kind of proto-Indo-European origin. And that at that time, there was a class of young unwed warriors that were associated with wolves. And now the Norse... The Norse, you know they got some stuff going on. Yeah, they had the Ulfhednar. Ulfhednar. That sounds frightening. And they were kind of like berserkers. That is frightening. That would wear like bear skins or wolf skins. Well, remember our our Norse and Finn, Finn folk, you know, were also want to transform into whales and seals, walruses, any kind of tough animal. Yeah. Why not? I want to transform into a walrus. Narwhal. Oh my God. Yes, please. Now in Armenian lore, there are women who, in consequence of deadly sins, are condemned to spend seven years in wolf form. Now in the typical account, a woman is visited by a wolf skin toting spirit who orders her to wear the skin, which causes her to acquire frightful cravings for human flesh soon after. Now the she-wolf then devours her own children. Oh my God. Then her relative's children in order of relationship. Starting with the furthest away, because that's... Closest. Okay. Of course. And finally, on to the children of strangers. Tell me this doesn't sound like a horror movie. She wanders only at night, with doors and locks springing open at her approach. Oh, I can see it. I can see how that would work in a horror movie. Just that, like, imagine it in a hotel hallway. You just hear all of them go, like a jail. So in Portuguese and Brazilian folklore, the seventh of the sons will become a werewolf. That's unfortunate. This makes me think of seven brides for seven brothers in a whole new light. The belief in the curse of the seventh sons so widespread in northern Argentina that the seventh sons were frequently abandoned back in the day. Wait, like Game of Thrones style? Or just given up for adoption. And there Somebody was, else can inherit this werewolf. Yeah, go ahead. You don't know it's the seventh one, do you? Take this baby. And so in 1920, a law was decreed that the president of Argentina is the official godfather of every seventh son. So the state would give a seventh son one gold medal in his baptism and a scholarship until the 21st year. So this helps kind of end that the stigma. Stigma, yeah. And now it's still kind of traditional that the president is the godfather of seven sons. Question Do daughters count? Is it like the seventh child? Or is it the, the daughters in. Portugal become witches. The seventh daughter. Yes. Is it just the seventh born in general? Like, so it could be it could be the seventh son, president of the world, seventh daughter that becomes a witch, or if you have six girls and then you finally have a seventh child and it's a son, he can become a werewolf. Well, that's just mean. <laughs> so Saint Patrick was said to have transformed the Welsh king Veriticus. Into a wolf as well. He had all kinds of animal hoodoo magic, huh? Oh, yeah. Snakes, werewolves, everything. So there are lots of ways that one can kill a werewolf. You can, of course, remove the belt or the coat. Um, They can be struck in the heart by a silver bullet, arrow, knife. Or they can be injured by iron. Um, You could submerge them in water. Really? Roll in grass with wet with dew. This one's a good one. Kneel for 100 years without moving or being disturbed. If you were a werewolf, this would cure you, or you could do it to cure someone else who is a werewolf? I think to cure yourself. I think that sounds like a very good plan. If you're a werewolf, you should go kneel mm-hmm. on a corner for a hundred mm-hmm. years? Years. 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 Whew. 
It's a hell of a timeout. Now, one of their weaknesses is an aversion to the plant wolfsbane. Interesting. I, I see the connection. So that's in like every movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, it sounds so cool, right? No, it really does. And supposedly it came from Cerebrus whenever his the drool from his lips dripped onto the ground. When Ew. you know, like Hercules wrestles him out of Hades. Drool flowers? Drool flowers. And they're very poisonous. They're toxic. Don't eat the jewel flowers. Yes. Okay. Noted. Now I feel like I need to see a picture of it in case I ever want to avoid eating poison jewel flowers. Like we said, these stories are very popular in that kind of European, German, Dutch, Finnish area. Also very, very popular in France, especially the area of France that is bordering Germany. And so you get Belgium in there, too. One person who did a lot of work on chronicling the werewolf legends of that area is George Sand. Who's he? She. She? Armandine Aurora Lucille Devendant Ne Dupin. It was, it was a woman? It was a woman. Women can write? Yes. <laughs> they can. Fantastically. Under men's names. <laughs> You're right. She's also one of the first people that wore pants. Rebel. I love it. You get arrested for that. She also had an affair with Chopin. Kate Chopin? Chopin Chopin. Chopin Chopin. Wait, piano Chopin? Piano Chopin. I thought you meant Kate. <laughs> I was titillated. <laughs> Wrong year. Fine. Now, she wrote a collection of folk stories similar to the Grimm's, which was, is Le Jean Rustique? Rustic Legends. Like it. You like that? How I translated that all by myself? And she details a lot of really interesting features that are very particular. For example, she discusses that there are two different kinds of wolf transformation opportunities available to you. You may be a Lubin or a Lupin. And these are different types of werewolves? Right. Or maybe just different personalities. But the Lubin, with a B, is stupid. No, it's too bad. Mild-mannered. Moonstruck creatures, and they usually just kind of loiter around graveyard walls. Like that illustration in the book? Yes. Where they look like James Dean. Smoking in the bathroom at school? Yeah, that's very much it. Um, They are giddy and usually bashful. If someone comes to pass, they run away crying, and they, for some reason, say, Robert died, Robert is dead. Now, this might refer to the medieval legend of Robert, a Norman knight, who was born a child of the devil and overcame his wicked ways and died a hermetic saint. Okay, that's interesting that they would just repeat that over and over again. Robert died, Robert is dead, Robert died, Robert... I mean, like, what a weird thing for a wolf leaning against a graveyard wall to say. You're right. That's the part to that's judge. That's the weird part. That's the weird part. That's it. Not the cool, like, greaser werewolves. <laughs> it's just not what I... I thought they were going to be... Like, I thought they would say, like... It's hydromatic. Summer loving. <laughs> Why, it could be wolf lightning. Go wolf lightning, you put. Sorry. I had a whole thing in my head. <laughs> it was amazing. You should have seen the pink lady wolves. I'm sure you did. But Sand notes that the Lubin is a, quote, very good fellow. Well, that's nice. And a guardian of workmen. Okay. So this is your nice werewolf. Mm-hmm. Buddy werewolf, like Buddy Jesus. So I'm guessing there's a not nice werewolf. The Lupin. With a P. P, yes. If it breaches the cemetery walls and unearths corpses, it will turn into a Lupin. 
and that is a true lycanthrope or werewolf. And you get that desecration of corpses again. Mm-hmm. Yes, very naughty, that. So to go back to our original tale, the Shenango dog boy. Mm-hmm. It was maybe from the 50s. Uh, ooh, the 50s. He was a greaser wolf. That's it. That's it. We have our explanation. But as I mentioned, there are many folk tales and legends of dog boys and werewolf-like creatures from the area. And are we back to exotic Northwest Pennsylvania now? Lovely Northwest Pennsylvania. Visit. Tell them we sent you. They'll say, who the hell is that? We don't know those guys. They've clearly never been here. We didn't sponsor anything. But you did for free. (laughs) But I found an even older tale from the area. No way. But Destination America said it started in the 50s. They had a real historian. I know. I read some books. (laughs) What are those? I don't know. They don't have those in Pennsylvania. So there's a legend originating near Brandywine Creek near the Delaware-Pennsylvania border. And it takes place during the American Revolution. Ooh, fun. So there was a red-haired continental soldier of French descent. Right. So he was related to Judas... No. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Il Trudeau. And now, Mr. Trudeau. Oh, like the Prime Minister. No, he's a fox. Oh, no. <laughs> so one day his fellow soldiers noticed that he would disappear from camp during a full moon. Mm. And sometimes return disheveled and with blood stains on his clothes. He was just going to provide universal health care and equal rights to all the citizens. Leave him alone. Or he was a werewolf. Okay, Whatever. So one night, a soldier was out hunting under the line of a full moon, and he shot this strange, red, fox-wolf-like creature. He tracked the creature and was shocked to find that the wounded animal had transformed back into Trudeau. Was he okay? (laughs) I don't think so, because his fox-like ghost still haunts the area. I don't think he was okay, Jacob. (laughs) So it's interesting that it's a French soldier. Yeah, there were French soldiers fighting with the Americans, right? That was kind of a thing that happened, at least Lafayette. Well, of course, of course there were. But why was he the werewolf and not any of the English, previously English fellows? Right, right. Well, so there's a very strong werewolf tradition in Quebec, French Canada. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. And that was also transmitted down to... South Louisiana. You don't say. Along with the Acadians. And it's called the Lugaru. The Lugaru. Does that sound scary? No, it sounds kind of romantic. It's not. Oh. <laughs> I'm easily swayed by French, apparently. And these creatures are still spotted in the deep south Louisiana bayous and also in the mountains of Quebec. And it was brought over to New France from... Old France. Right. That's just math. And you do also see it in other places where... French people settled, such as like in the Caribbean. Cool. So like you'll still see it in Haiti. It's been incorporated into their kind of voodoo traditions. And you also have some combination with some of the Native American tales of, you know, Wendigos and Skinwalkers. This is just improving upon the legend. But that's for another episode, isn't it? For sure. For sure. At least one. Maybe three. (laughs) Yes. But Lugaru is the French phrase for werewolf, and Lou meaning wolf, and Garou meaning like a shapeshifter. So shifts into wolf. And it rhymes, which I think is why it's caught on in everywhere French people have ever been. They're like, it just sounds nice. Like, chant it. So do you want to hear a Quebec folk tale? Quebecian? What is their like? I'm going to go with Quebec. <laughs> okay. I'm going to go with you. 
So a young man named Andre wants to become a hunter and a trapper. Mm-hmm. And so he's taken up an apprenticeship with a master trapper named Hubert Savage. Hubert Savage. Right? Isn't that good? It almost rhymes. Now one night as they're sitting around the fire, they hear howls in the distance. And Savage tells them, ah, it's the Lugaru. Do you know how to recognize the Lugaru? And Andre says, no. So there's a white spot on its head. And so Savage gives him a good luck charm mm-hmm. to help keep him safe. So that night, he sees Hubert get up and walk into the woods. It's going to defecate in the bushes. He stays awake and sees this large white wolf coming out of the woods with a big deer in its mouth. Wow. It was bigger than any dog Andre had ever seen, but the wolf just passed by him. Well, that's lucky. He watched it feed in the light of the full moon, holding tightly to his good luck charm. Later that night, Hubert came back into the camp and went to sleep, trying not to wake anyone. Okay, I have a question. You told him that he would be able to recognize it by its white spot on its forehead. Uh And it's a white wolf. You're right. It doesn't, it's tricky. It's problematic. So the next day, Andre woke their companion, Leo, and told him everything. They went and found the carcass of the deer, but could find no wolf tracks. And so Leo tells him, I've heard the Lugaru never leaves tracks behind him. So Leo is aware of the existence of Lugarus. Like, apparently... Of course, he's a hunter and a trapper. Andre was just being initiated. He was fresh. He's a new kid. Fresh new meat, kid. as it were. So what do we know about the Lugaru so far? It has a white spot on its forehead. And it doesn't leave tracks behind. Yes. Okay. And so Leo tells Andre that we must be careful. But Andre begs Leo for help. Please talk to Hubert. Ask him what's going on. Now Hubert was still sleeping and woke with this conversation. He says, why did you not wake me for breakfast? And Leo says, well, I didn't think you would be hungry with that large meal you had last night. Oh, it's the farmhands. Mm-hmm. You don't have to worry. I wouldn't hurt you or the boy. I proved it last night. I'm not bad. I'm just like Twilight. Now Leo says, I want to believe you, but you never can tell about these things, can you? So he packs his bag and he's preparing to leave. And Hubert asks if Andre is going to stay. And Andre reaches for his good luck charm and says that he will. So he's really buying into this whole protective charm element thing. Well, maybe it worked the night before. So Hubert begs Andre and Leo to keep it a secret. But Leo says, I'll try. But I don't promise. Leo's kind of a dick. And Hubert looks at him and says, You may see me as a Lugaru again. And what would you do? He says, Well, if it tried to cause me harm, I may kill it. <gasps> no. It's escalated quickly. Yes, later the Lugaru does appear again and attacks Leo. Now Andre takes his good luck charm and throws it at the Lugaru and strikes it square on the white spot on its head drawing blood. Before their eyes, the Lugaru transforms back into Savage, who thanks Andre for freeing him from his curse. Oh, how nice. That worked well. Now there is another version of, of the story. Of course there is, and I don't think it's going to have a happy ending. If I know anything about director's cuts is that they don't have happy endings. So in this version, Hubert Savage comes out of the woods and is taken in by a local miller, and they just kind of sit around, drinking, causing a ruckus. And then the townspeople start noticing that sheep and cows are starting to die. Oh, so he's going after easy prey. So late one night, the miller that took him in encounters a fierce wolf and manages to cut off its ear during a violent struggle. So in the morning... What? 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 
Who bears missing an ear. Yes. The wound. Yes. Classic stories. Mm-hmm. Still told in Quebec today. Amazing. Or transmitted from France. So we do have some rules of the oh, Lugaru. I love rules. In case you ever encounter one. These are so handy. But really, this is like my favorite part of folklore. Like when we get like the the very clean definitions. There are no clean definitions. It's always this or this or this or this. For example. Shit. Often, a person is transformed into a wolf for being non-pious, such as failing to meet his religious Easter duties for seven years in a row. I have a feeling I'm going to be a wolf soon. (laughs) Or he can be cursed by a witch. Or he can be bitten by a lugaroo. Oh. Or caught in its evil gaze. That's not fair. But once the curse is passed on, the previous victim is freed from the spell. Oh, I'd be biting some people. And of course, if the creature's injured or killed, they instantly become humans again. Oh, and that's why we get Uber turning back into Uber when he gets hit with the good luck charm. Yes. And that's one way to break the curse is to draw blood. Mm. Another way to break the curse is just waiting it out. It can last 101 days or a year and a day. That extra little day issue seems to be crucial. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's a nice round number, plus one. And if you draw the blood, you must keep it secret for that entire time of the curse period. So until mm. that has lapsed. So you can't go telling people you were a Lugaru. And you can't say, I freed Ube Sauvage from, from his... Lugaruness. Yes. Will he turn back or will you turn into one? You'll both be cursed. No. <laughs> God, I would never be able to pull that off. And so usually these Lugarus are going to hunt down Christians that have broken lint. And this is why we have fish on Fridays. That's right. If you don't eat your fried fish on Friday, a Lugaru is going to kill you. I always thought in Louisiana it was not much of a sacrifice to only eat seafood on Fridays. It's not. <laughs> so now in South Louisiana, um, Bergeron Salat has done a lot of folklore collecting and the deep bayous. <laughs> is his last name Ocelot? Ocelot. Ocelot. I don't know. I was going to say, he has a cool last name. want to make him a logo. <laughs> and a lot of the stories in South Louisiana mm-hmm. are very similar to the other stories. That we get from Quebec and that German-French border. Yes. Fun. So there's a classic husband story mm. of a newlyweds. So the young bride is waiting for her husband laid on the moonlight near the swamp. And now, although her husband has warned his bride not to go out after dark, she becomes impatient for his return and ignores his warning. Oh, this is that, like, oh my God, it's midnight. Where the hell is he? And as she's saying that, she sees a glowing pair of red eyes emerge from the woods. Oh, perhaps I should not have gone through his text messages and followed him outside, regretting everything. In the clearing, she sees the large Lugaru looming over. Now she's shocked by the sight and fails to avert her eyes from the creature's fiendish gaze before it retreats back into the woods. Now she had been told the tales of the Lugaru as a child. Thank God. And so she knew what was going to happen since she was caught in the evil gaze. So each full moon, she would go and lock herself up in the woodshed. Resourceful. And since her husband frequently worked at night, he didn't know that she had done this each full moon. So now finally a year and a day passes. Oh, that, that's it. And her husband asks her if she's ever waited for him at night by the edge of the woods. The, the wife lies and says that she's never done that and didn't see anything. Nothing at all. 
and her husband looks straight into her eyes and says that he knows she has because he was the Luguru that she encountered a year and a day ago. And since they've kept their silence for the requisite time period, the curse is broken for both of them. And they get to live happily ever after. Hooray. And not be wolves anymore. As long as they go to church. Oh, yes, definitely. And no meat on Fridays or else. So there's actually a story that is very similar to this from Avignon that was written down in 1558. Right, right. So there's also the classic wound stories mm-hmm. you can hear. But people do still claim to see this in the swamps of Louisiana. I thought that was the Swamp Island Honey Monster. Some people say they're the same thing. People say so much. They do. You want to hear some? <laughs> yes. Tell me some things we will say, but do it in a funny voice. Not me. <laughs> <laughs> that one. <laughs> so the owner of a local swamp tour company yes. was out on the bayous in the outskirts of New Orleans. And he was trapping out in the woods. Uh-huh. He was getting close to sunset. He began to make his way back to the boat. And suddenly he came upon a gray creature about the size of a large dog. He thought that's what it was. But within seconds, the animal began to growl and snarl, and a mass of fog surrounded it and began to grow even larger. Uh-uh. Then the creature stood on two feet and howled. Our young trapper falls to the ground, crawls out to the shore of the bayou and into his boat. And he says that he never looked back as he sped away. And he believes in the old Cajun stories. And he did not tell anyone about it for a year and a day. That is a good man. I love it. You think he set a reminder on his phone? One can hope. Set reminder, tell about that Luguru today. Go to church. No meat. Now, Winsley B.O. and Aldo oh. Jean Charlet. <laughs> With some names. Resident said the stories worried him as a child, but not anymore. Man, they had some Rougarou back in the old days, usually during the full moon. But I never did see one. But then he adds, I still don't want to. <laughs> and so the Lugaru also called the Rougarou. Why is it the Rougarou? It's just like how it sounds when an old Cajun person says it. It's a Rougarou. Major Rougarou. So this is the story that I did. I grew up with. You this grew is up one with Rougarou. This is one of the boogeymen that my grandparents and my aunts would tell me about. And it is still told today. People still do say they see it out in the bayous. And one of my favorite parts of the legend you'll hear sometimes is that they have a Rougarou ball. Uh-uh. Yeah, and you know, a big party at night. Like a witch's Sabbath. Or a Mardi Gras ball. Or both. All of it combined. <laughs> and they fly in on bats. Okay. Somebody has some spatial reasoning skills issues, but we're going to let it go because I like the story. I want to illustrate this so badly. drinks. Yes. (laughs) Sitting around the fire at the camp on the bayou. That's what happens. So what happened is some asshole like me got a hold of the story and told their kids this, like, embellished one time. And then that's all it took because it's so much fun. It's true. And they have a a Rougarou festival. And like the ball or like a real one. <laughs> like we could go. Yes, I think we will be. Amazing. Where? In, in Homa. Oh, okay. Which is like if you've seen Swamp People, you've seen Homa. <laughs> so these stories have been in Louisiana since the French settlers came here from Quebec. And in Quebec they got their stories from Old France. <laughs> Alright, so we have tracked it from Old France. To Quebec, 
to gauge on country. So in Quebec, during the 1700s, there was a werewolf outbreak. This does not shock me at all. (laughs) So from July 1766 until December of 1767, the area around Quebec City was terrorized by what locals claimed to be a loup-garou. On the 21st of July 1766, the Quebec Gazette reported on the alleged event. By accounts from St. Rock, we learn that there is a loup-garou wandering around the neighborhood in the form of a beggar, which, to the talent of persuading people to believe what he himself is ignorant of, and promising what he cannot perform, as that of obtaining what he desires. It is said that this animal came, by the assistance of his two hind legs, to Quebec, the 17th of last month, and set out from hence, the 18th following, with the design to pursue the errand to Montreal. The beast is said to be as dangerous as that which appeared last year in the country of Gévaudan, Wherefore, it is recommended to the public to be as cautious of him as if it would be a ravenous wolf. That beggar sounds like he is up to no good. I think he he may have come, may have come from France, may have come from Gévaudan even. <gasps> the beast caught a boat. The beast of Gévaudan. The beast of Gévaudan. Now we've said it so many times that you know we're about to talk about it for an hour, so buckle up and get your crazy pants on. So just like in Quebec... There was a scourge of werewolves and beasts killing people among the countryside, especially from the 15th century to the 18th century. During the reign of Louis XV, a beast roamed the forest of Gévaudan. Le Bet preyed on shepherds and shepherdesses and milkmaids, tending their sheep in the remote areas picking off isolated women and children at a rate that seemed truly monstrous. The first attack that was documented occurred on June 30th of 1764, when a young shepherdess named Jean Boulet, who was just 14 years old, was maimed and killed by a wolf. One of her shoulders was pulled from her body and dragged away. Holy shit. It started here, but it kind of would not end. So in 1878, Robert Louis Stevenson, one of our favorites... It's like 100 years later. Yes. Traveled to the region to try and learn more about this legend and understand the beast a little better. And he wrote this. Night after night, I have given ear to the perturbing concert of wind among the trees. But whether it were a difference in the trees or the lie of the ground, or because I was myself outside in the midst of it, the fact that remains that the wind sang a different tune among the woods of Gévaudan. Well, if Robert Louis Stevenson buys it, I'm in. (laughs) He went on to describe the creature's exploits. Wolves, alas, like bandits, seem to flee the traveler's advance, and you may trudge through all of comfortable Europe and not meet an adventurer worth the name. But here, if anywhere, a man was in the frontiers of hope, for this was the land of the ever-memorable beast the Napoleon Bonaparte of the wolves. What a career was his. He lived ten months at free quarters in Gévaudan and Vivore. He ate women and children, and shepherdesses celebrated for their beauty. He pursued armed horsemen. He had been seen at broad noonday chasing a post-chase and an outrider along the king's high road, and the chase and the outrider fleeing before him at a gallop. He was placarded like a political offender, and ten thousand francs were offered for his head. 10,000 francs. Yeah. So we have a tyrant of a beast. Yeah. Roaming around, killing beautiful women, 
innocent children and brave men. Yes. For real. Yeah, like seriously. <laughs> actually, they were, really were being killed. So Gavaldon is close-ish to the German border. It's on the eastern side of France. And it sort of triangulates between Marseille, Toulouse, and Lyon. Now, it's inland, no coast or anything. It's forested, mountainous. And some, this is during the Little Ice Age. You'll remember. We have mentioned that. And also, a plague had struck in 1720 and wiped out, like, half the population. And there was a severe famine in the region from 1748 to 1750. So things were not peachy. Hard times. Hard times in Gévaudan. It's the best of times. It's the worst of times. No, it was the worst of times. Uh, It was the worst of times. Wrong book. (laughs) It's cold. Everyone died. There's no food. And now wolves are eating us. Dickens would love it. He hated it. Dickens wrote about this Seriously? and he hated it but so much. But there's so much. much death and sadness. He thought it was silly. Okay, fine. I like silly. <laughs> he had no sense of humor. That's true. That's why I don't read him. <laughs> so in September of 1764, there had been at least four attacks the previous month. Etienne Lafont, a royal administrator, wrote to the Bishop of Mond, which was the local capital, and the bishop informed him not to worry, at least like not about killing it because... <laughs> the beast was divine punishment from God. The Lent thing. <laughs> the Lent thing. I think it was a little bit more than that. There were Huguenots in the region, and yeah. the Jesuits were not digging the Huguenots, and it was kind of a thing. So he was kind of like these Protestants, you know, man, they're bringing God's wrath down on us. And they ate a hamburger on Friday. <laughs> Do you see them just sitting over there eating meat? It's Thursday. Yeah, well, they're just warming up, okay? <laughs> now... Etienne decided that he needed to reach out for more secular assistance. So he wrote to the Count Morgane because he had decided that the father and the son were probably best suited to help in this pursuit of beast eradication. So he wanted the Count to come help. He wanted the Count and his son. And so Pierre Charles was the father and his son's name was Jean-Francois. These are really like stereotypically French names and they will continue to be. It sounds like we're making it up. But we're not. And they were both veterans of the Seven Years' War. Would have been four years. They'd let St. Germain do his thing. That's true. And they were kind of important aristocrats in the region. And so they agreed to help kill the beast. And presumably, now this cannot be confirmed 100% for sure, but presumably they sang the song while they were setting out on their mission. Hearts ablaze, banners high, we go marching into battle, unafraid of the dangers just increased. Raise the flag, sing the song. Here we come, we're 50 strong, and 50 Frenchmen can't be wrong. Kill, Kill the, the beast! <laughs> but that's speculation. Sure. I'm pretty sure I mean, it's accurate. Yeah. Um, so in October of 1764, Lafont was able to gain permission to allow the local population to arm themselves, which is a really big deal because only... Because that could lead to a revolution. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, well, I guess it didn't work out so well in the end. For the royals. The but anyway, that's not the point. The point is now they can go kill the beast and sing that song. As long as you're just hunting beast and not making revolutions, you're not allowed to do that. All fine. Now, there's also a reward of 200 livres offered, which was one year's salary for a laborer. I'm going to kill a beast. A whole year. Paid for a whole year's work. Just, just go kill a wolf. No big deal. So throughout the month of October, there were eight attacks and five deaths. And there were a series of hunts organized by the Count. And many of these groups were accompanied by the sheepdogs of their day. Sheepdogs? That's ferocious. They were mastiffs. Okay. (laughs) That's a beast. And they had giant spikes protruding from their collars. So these are quite intimidating. Yes. And those were in case they got into a wolf brawl. So the wolf couldn't get to their necks. Yes. 
or if they really just hated their parents. Dad! I don't want to hunt a wolf. Just want to listen to my music. You'll never get it. Now, later, the reward would go up to 10,000 livres. Damn. Remember, it started at 200. We've escalated. And a notice went out in papers in France as well as in England. And this is this one's from a London paper. And they read as follows. By the king intendant of the province of Languedoc, notice is given to all persons that his majesty being justly affected by the situation of his subjects, now exposed to ravages of wild beasts, four months past infested vivarais and gravetons, and being desirous to stop the progress of such a creature, such a calamity, has determined to promise a reward of six thousand livres to any person or persons who shall kill this animal, such as are willing to undertake the pursuit, may previously apply to the Sieur de la Font, a sub-deputy intendant of Mans, who will give them the necessary instructions agreeably to what has been presented by the ministry on the part of his majesty. So they were so desperate they were going to ask the British for help. Yeah, so oh. you know it's oh. rough. Bad. And there it says 6,000. There was an additional 4,000 offered like by, by other noblemen. So I'm guessing the Count's hunts did not go so well. Eh, he was not making a lot of progress. He was really just parading around his fancy dogs and their emo collars. So eventually, Captain Duhamel was called in to hunt down this wolf. He arrived from Normandy on October the 31st with his unit of dragoons. And the first of 50 official hunts took place on November 15th. Now, news accounts from the Times says that at this point, the lives of 30 people have been taken by the beast. But as far as official records go, we've only got about half that number confirmed. Which is still a lot. But right, journalistic integrity was not really a thing yet. Not a thing. Is it still? Don't mock the press. We need them. Democracy dies in the darkness, okay? (laughs) There was at least one more death in November. An older woman, a widow, was killed by the beast, and they actually used her remains as bait. Seriously? Yes, and they poisoned them. Well, I guess she wasn't doing anything else. (laughs) Right. But come on, Catholic. You think this is going to go over well? Like, you think this is going over well with the general population? Like, Yeah, especially since some older traditions say werewolves desecrate the dead. (laughs) That's what they do. And so they hoped this would make the beast return. It did not. Now, in December, there were 10 more deaths, and many of these victims were decapitated. That's odd. I find it odd, too. I mean, I think technically, yeah, it could be done. But many of them? My question is, like, how long was, would that take? I mean, that's a morbid question, but just thinking about this in a rational way, like, it seems like that's a process for a wolf. It also seems like something they wouldn't do frequently. It could happen like once. sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the Bishop of Mond, you will remember, said this is divine punishment for the sins and the Protestants' sins, and determined that the thing to do would be to organize a 48-hour prayer vigil that would be conducted each week for three weeks, beginning on Epiphany. What is Epiphany, Catholic bells? It's in January. Three kings come find Jesus. Yes. So they're going to try to find a wolf instead, or a beast. Kill the beast. But on the day of Epiphany, the beast actually responded by killing two women instead of just one. Now, throughout the month of January, there were two dozen more attacks and ten more deaths. And one uplifting story that was circulated during this time is that of Jean, sometimes written Jacques Pontefay, and he and seven other children between the ages of eight and twelve were out in the fields one day, and the beast came upon them, and Jacques and the other children 
fought off the beast using their crooks, which they had outfitted with blades from bayonets, and shoot it away. Should we arm children that young? <laughs> Honey, they worked two jobs. They drank black coffee. He was actually paid a small bounty, and his education was paid for by the king. And he went on to have a military career. It's like an athletic scholarship. Wolf killing. Like Jacques, Catherine Boyer survived her attack by the beast, and she was rewarded with the nickname Balafre. Scarface. Yeah. No scholarship. No scholarship. I'm seeing some some old-fashioned sexism here. (laughs) So as previously discussed, the hunts were not going super well. And so alternative methods of catching the beast, ensnaring the beast, killing the beast, were put forward by many local experts. They do like some witchcraft? Kinda. This is more like science. Oh, good. So like witchcraft? (laughs) Yeah. So Monsieur Gerard de Papot wrote to officials in February suggesting counterfeiting a woman. He said the monster's obviously ravenous for females. Of course. Now, he suggested that they make up their own artificial females and exposing them on flexible posts on various roads to invite the cursed animal to show its unbridled fury and swallow its own end. It was explained that the women should be made of three expanded pig bladders seasoned with poison, which would make up the woman's head and breast, and a painted face could then be affixed. No. It's my favorite. Pig bladder babies. It's my favorite. To catch a beast. (laughs) There's more. Oh, good. Monsieur de Papot decided maybe that wasn't it. And he wrote again about 10 weeks later, and he said that he needed no pig bladders, but he would need 25 men. And they should be dressed in assorted animal skins and feathers with headgear, trimmed with feathers and small knife edges. Everything should be coated in honey and be fragrant with musk. Then the hunters should combine 12 ounces of human fat from a Christian with viper's blood, if available, and distribute this to the parties in boxes. The men should then be armed with earths and pistols and three square bullets bitten by the teeth of a woman or a girl, and then joined with pieces of iron, and also covered with fat, plus hunting knives and iron claws, also greased. And then they should patrol in large triangles, composed of three men each. That sounds like a sound plan. (laughs) Monsieur de may have done better on his first plan. The pig bladders was in. At least no one is getting covered in feathers and honey. And Christian fat. And Christian fat. Have a gun, too. With a bullet bitten by a woman or a girl. Monsieur de Popeau, while he may have been our most prolific planner, was not the only one. There was also Monsieur Hébert de Veronese, who wanted to dress sheep up like little girls. At least no one's getting harmed in that process. Well, the sheep is. Maybe they liked it. Well, he also wanted to put a bonnet on them, and I think that's a bridge too far. (laughs) Stop judging with the sheep unaware, Sam. (laughs) You went very fancy sheep, I'm sorry. Now, it was best to arrange this sheep in a way that they stood up on their hind legs. Of course. You'd have to bind them, clearly. Oh, God, poor sheep. (laughs) Now that's a bridge too far. And other children that were not the the sheep in girls' clothing, kind of a twist on a theme there, (laughs) would be made of straw and positioned around them in order to make it look like they were, you know, hanging out and being natural. Oh, Maybe so the sheep wouldn't be lonely. And he said that these fake kids could be hanging out and playing and we could hide some people with big guns. Big guns. Just out of eyesight. Perfect. 
Genius. Sounds like a good plan. And then a curate from Reims wrote that the beast was clearly a tiger cat from Mexico. Of course. And that the officials should just grease the backs of veal calves with poison because everyone knows tiger cats from Mexico love veal. Of course. They have a very refined palate. And then a Lieutenant Colonel Duboquet advised that they switch to steel musket balls because the beast was covered in scales and those scales were obviously impervious to lead. Of course. Just logic. And then Monsieur Lepinot, Mongabom, proposed an infallible wooden machine. Okay. Just which a, would be just a machine. It was going to be a machine. It was going to be on a 25-foot track. And it would go back and forth on the track. And then they would put a model of a child inside as bait. And this would allow them to take the creature alive for the king. Oh, good. Now, this would only work if someone was nearby in a tree crying and lamenting all day and even more at night. This is the best plan. These are great. So which one worked? Oh, none of these. <laughs> oh, no. They Even did. at the time, people were like, yeah, no. Thanks. So I'm guessing instead they kept on a hunting. Well, and poisoning carcasses. Good. Of Christians and putting them out. In February, there were 20 attacks by the beast and five more locals died. And Duhamel was replaced, maybe joined, depends on who you ask, by... The hunters, Jean-Charles and Jean-Francois Deneval, and they were father and son, respectively. And Jean-Charles was referred to as an old Norman gentleman who has grown gray in the pursuit of wolves. Sounds like he's got the credentials. That sounds so badass. I could say that on a call sheet. Mm-hmm. I was thinking it sounded like a Van Helsing thing. I don't know. Well, I mean, the only person that could play this role would be... Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. Clearly. They brought in six specially trained wolf hunting dogs. Oh, with spike collars and everything? Well, we don't know yet. They haven't arrived. But they're on their way. They're coming. They're coming. We've ordered them. Amazon Prime. Two-day shipping. Or not. It's going to take a while for the dogs to get there. This is going to be a thing. But they also brought in a surgeon who would be there on site to identify the species in the event that the beast was killed. And they said that they should have it wrapped up in about two weeks. No biggie. Now, in March, the Dunavals were still waiting on their dogs to arrive, and 23 more attacks had occurred and eight more deaths had occurred. Glad they came. The dogs? They're not there yet. <laughs> the hunters? They're also not really present. But during this month, we would also learn of the valor of Jean Gervais. Jean Valjean? Jean Gervais. Not Hugh Jackman. Don't get too excited. This is a girl. Sorry. Oh. A girl. Cool. What'd she do? She's a woman who lived in St. Albans Parish with her husband, Pierre, who was a tenant farmer, and their six children. Now, March 13th, Jean was outside in her garden with three of her children, her daughter and a six-year-old son and a baby. And they're out there and she's hanging up clothes on the line. And her daughter's holding the baby. And suddenly, over the garden wall comes La Bette. The beast. The beast, yes. And it lands and growls, startling them all. And it goes after her daughter, who's holding the baby. And she's able to scare it off, just making noise and clapping and throwing stones at it. She finally gets distracted from her daughter and the baby. And it turns and attacks her six-year-old son and jumps back over the wall with him and starts dragging him out toward the tree line. And Jean follows, running as fast as she can, and actually catching up to the beast, who was slowed down because of the weight of the child. What'd she do? She pulls its tail. Awesome. And then she hits it in the head with a rock. That's awesome. It is awesome. But it had already clawed her once, and this time it takes off like a big piece of her cheek with its paw. 
and claws. Badass mama. Oh, mama bear. Get it. It gathers itself after being hit on the head and turns around and picks up the kid again. Just just does. And starts heading out toward the tree line again. And she's bleeding at this point, like very severely injured. But luckily she sees her two older sons coming out of the forest. They see her and they see the beast. And they realize that something is very wrong. The sons had their sheepdog with them. And the sheepdog takes off. And one of the boys follows him toward the beast. And the other comes to her. And then the boy who's followed the beast toward the tree line is able to use his speared crook and stab the beast in its haunches. At which point it does drop his brother and runs to the woods. Unfortunately, the boy will die three days later because of his injuries. But all of France was very inspired by the story of this woman's bravery. And she was rewarded with 300 livres from the king. She became like a folk hero. Yes, very much so. But on the same night as this attack where the beast has been stabbed, hit in the head, had its tail pulled, been in an encounter with, you know, Mama Bear with supernatural power from beyond, it kills another kid. Really? On the same night. This is very, very concerning. The clip, the pace of this thing is crazy. So... During this time, really all that's going on with the hunt is that Duhamel and the Dunavals are just kind of bickering and bitching at each other. And waiting for their dogs. Waiting. waiting. They're on, on back order. <laughs> I'm sorry. I paid the $70 at the beginning of the year and I expect my items to be delivered within two days. Let me talk to your manager. <laughs> so the younger Dunaval comes out and is like, uh, Duhamel, you're fired. And he's like, okay, why? He's like, I, I have orders here from the king that say you're fired. He's like, Show me the paper. He's like, uh uh-uh. He's like, let me see it. No, you can't see it. It's an invisible ink. (laughs) I left it back and I left it with my dogs. My dog ate it. My dog ate it. (laughs) Then I'll leave when the dogs get here. (laughs) Okay, fine. So they're bickering. They're going back and forth. And finally, at long last, the dogs do arrive. Hooray, let's go get the beast. Just in time for rough snow. Okay. And so this kind of derails all the hunting efforts. Now, the Dunavals would go out in bad weather. They would continue to hunt in the bad weather. But the dogs, the dogs were not allowed to hunt in bad weather. It's good they waited for them. So April would see six more deaths and 17 more attacks. And there was a large hunt organized on the 21st involving 20 communities. And then another wolf stalk was held with participants from 56 parishes at the end of the month, and both proved fruitless. In May, the La Chomette brothers saw the beast. They were out at night. They saw the beast. They went and grabbed their guns. They got back. It was still there. Really? It was yes. like waiting for them. Yes. And two of them, they all shot at it. Two of them actually hit it. Kill the beast. And it fell both times. And they knew that they'd shot it. And all of them had seen it. And they were like, picking on the one that didn't hit it and like you're stupid we win and so they call for the the donovals to come out that night to come see the beast help them look for it they don't make it they come the next day and so they go out the next morning to go look for the beast carcass because they're certain that you know anything that gets shot twice is going to die one would think it didn't no wolf tracks no wolf tracks the month ended with another four deaths the clip of the Dez is just shocking. No, it really is. Like, no one's that hungry. So, did the British send reinforcements? The British sent this. A parody. <laughs> of course. Was it dry? Yes. <laughs> they printed in London 
that the beast had bested thousands of Frenchmen simply by wagging its tail and breaking wind. No. But it had been vanquished by a mother cat who had grown very angry when the beast ate one of her kittens. Well, if it was a Mexican tire cat. That no, would they only eat veal be, yeah, right. because it's cruel. The Denevals and Duhamel were not Duhameling much. And things continued to get worse. June would see another four deaths. And one nine-year-old boy was killed, and his younger sister went missing at the same time. And everyone assumed that she had been, you know, killed and eaten. Right, yeah. Safe assumption. But the parents actually found her. They found her days later, hidden under rocks. Wow. And she had gone completely insane and could no longer speak. Hmm, interesting. She must have been caught in its gaze. Maybe so. Things weren't going well, and Louis XV finally had enough of this shit and decided to send in a real professional. I thought we already had the gray wizened wolf hunter. The dogs, man. It was just, it was really... Blame the dogs. It's the dogs. Fine. So who's he send in? What's the, superhero? The royal gun bearer. That is a superhero. Yes. And his name is Francois Antoine, and he is 71 years old. Oh, he's going to wrestle that wolf down. Don't you worry. Does he have a son? Everyone else brings their son. Yes, he does. Uh, <laughs> Robert Francois. Of course. And they also bring with them a company of royal gamekeepers and other assistants. So they come bearing an entourage. And two more people die in July. But at the scene of the attacks, Francois Antoine bothers to look for tracks. Oh, no wonder he survived a 71. Mm-hmm. And he does say that he believes that these are the tracks of a very large wolf. But then heavy rains began to plague the hunting party. Who had presumably, and I mean, this cannot be confirmed, this is just conjecture based on what we know of the time, had presumably been singing the song. Bring your guns, bring your knives, shave your children. Hmm? I said shave. <laughs> bring your guns. Don't, don't shave the children. Don't. Unless they're werewolves. And then just nick them. <laughs> It'll fix everything and don't talk about it. But anyway, I'm sorry. I messed up our song. And this is, you know, authentic history. Yes, of course. I saw the movie. No, what? What? Nothing. Twice. <laughs> bring your guns, bring your knives, save your children and your wives. We'll save our village and our lives. We'll kill, we'll kill the, the beast. beast. Hey, so there was another death in the following month of August. And then the beast faced off with another tough girl. I kind of like this trend. I know. <laughs> Does she pull its tail? No, she stamps it. <laughs> awesome. With a spear she made from a spindle. Fantastic. This is the story of 19-year-old Marie-Jean Vallée, and she and her sister, Therese, who was 16, crossing a river. And being a very smart and resourceful young lady, she brought along her spindle spear, just in case, and indeed, she did need it. She and her sister were attacked by the beast, and she stabbed it. And according to her testimony, the beast cried out and then covered its wound with its paw before throwing itself in the river and rolling over a few times in the water and then disappearing. Hmm. That covering its wound thing freaks me. But also awesome that she stabbed it with her homemade spear. I know. Well, Francois Antoine was mightily impressed. He called her the second maid of Orléans. I was thinking, like, she inspired by Joan of Arc. (laughs) Something like that. And then other people writing about her said she was an Amazon, which, heck yes, she was. (laughs) And there's a statue today in her honor depicting the battle between her and the beast. Amazing. Now, poor Therese cropped out. Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> cropped out. Yeah. Well, she didn't attack it with a spear. Jean, Jean, Jean. <laughs> now, you can kind of look at things like 
and the characters we've seen so far, Jacques Portefeuille and Jean Gervais and Jean-Marie Vallée, and see that they very quickly became folk heroes. And there are memorials and monuments all across France to all of them. Like these are very Davy Crockett-esque folk heroes. And you thought only America had heroes like that. (laughs) No, no, no. These are les gens rustiques. And so as much as they're folk heroes, the thing they fought has to be kind of the equivalent on the other side. Like it has to be beast. Something truly unusual. Now two more girls would die the following month. And a large wolf was killed, but it was determined not to have been the beast. In September, a pack of wolves was spotted near a nunnery in Chausey. Not a nunnery. Get thee to a nunnery. The beast took that too literally. So the royal gun bearer and all of the king's men and all the king's horses yes. set off to the nunnery. Supposedly. <laughs> and again, this can't be confirmed. But supposedly, they were singing the song. The nuns or the men? The men. Maybe the nuns too. Everyone. The nuns came out and they had pitchforks. We're not safe until he's dead. He'll come stalking us at night, set to sacrifice his children to his monstrous appetite. He'll wreak havoc in our village if we let him wander free. It's time to take action, boys. It's time to follow me. But again, that's just conjecture. Are you especially good at expectorating? No, but I'm pretty sure that the royal gun bearer was. I bet. And I bet he also used antlers in all of his decorating. My, what a guy. So Francois Antoine and his men reconvened at the abbey in the forest on September 20th. And these woods were called pommiers, or the woods of apple trees. (laughs) Very ominous. I guess it was the Wizard of Oz. Or forbidden fruit. There's a beast in the garden, really. Now, he saw some suspicious tracks, and he decided to kneel down, check them out. And while examining the tracks, he found the convergence of several paths. He happened to look up, and he thought to himself, a donkey? Here? In Pommier Woods? Was near a the nunnery? donkey doing this the whole time? Oh, no. No, that's a wolf. He's a good hunter. Fifty steps away and closing in. It was monstrous. Mon Dieu, breathed the knight of St. Louis. He scrambled for his gun and took aim. Francois Antoine used a large caliber, long-barreled caradier, a duck-hunting shotgun, loaded with five charges of strong powder. Did he have a girl or woman bite it? I don't know that. And 33 buckshot pellets, ranging from four and a half to eight and a half millimeters in diameter. Very important details. <laughs> if any of you are gun buffs and need to know how to take down a beast, just wanted you to have this info. So it works? Well, not, not his shots. He fires. <laughs> he stumbles back a few paces. The gun kicked like a mule. Wildly, he recovered and peered through the gun smoke. The load hit home. It looked to have gone through the wolf's right eye and out the right side. Hurrah! But, impossible, the wolf got to its feet and charged. Tight-lipped, Antoine forced himself to focus. No time to reload. My knife, he felt at his side. The gap narrowed. Francois Antoine's mind raced. Beaten, stun it with the gun. Use the knife. The wolf was ten steps away. He brought up the gun. Bam! Who? What? Uncle! Rincard! Thank the Lord, Antoine's nephew, gamekeeper of the Duke of Orleans, had positioned himself behind the beast and fired. Nephew, did he succeed? The white smoke blinded Antoine, who expected the beast to be upon him at any second. He clasped the barrel of a gun and it burned. Uncle! Then he saw. The wolf had fallen again, but true, the stories the peasants told, it was rising once more. How can this be? Your knife! shouted Rinkard. But there was no need. 
the wolf staggered off in a different direction, running crazily for 20 yards and then fell and died. <gasps> they did kill the beast. And Francois Antoine patted the wolf carcass and said, he is expected at court. They did it. They did it. Amazing. Killed the beast. Well, it's good Louis sent his royal gun bearer. Right. So it was a big wolf. They killed a big wolf. A very big wolf, apparently. Did it have scales? No. Unfortunate. <laughs> yes. Well, it was sent to Versailles. It did make an appearance at court. It was stuffed. And Louis was quite impressed with it and paraded it around and supposedly put a little hat on it. No. No, he didn't. Aw. <laughs> I wish he did. Okay, he did. Okay, now he did. <laughs> Madame Pompadour, bring me your wigs. No capuçon. Do you have any blush? <laughs> oh, the rouge. The rouge. Now that is a bet. You naughty bet. <laughs> the bet is now la belle. <laughs> Francois Antoine hung out in Gavadon for a little bit longer. He stayed around until about November the 3rd. Because he wanted to take out the rest of the wolves that had been kind of seen with this one. He was getting some weird reports from locals. He just wanted to make sure he really did sew things up. And 72 days after the version of events that we have just heard transpires, and the beast is dead, it begins to appear that the beast may not be so dead. Oh no. Oh no, indeed. A seven-year-old boy was taken by an animal, but he was stopped when a teenage shepherd used his spear. Yes, we we should be arming all the children. Spears, just in case. And this was followed by more attacks on December 10th and 13th, and another decapitation of an 11-year-old girl on December 21st, and the killing of a 13-year-old girl on December 23rd, where only her hands and feet and clothing were found. That's odd. Yes, it is. So the people in Gavadon suspected that the beast was back. I can't imagine why. The king considered the case closed because he had a vet. Look how fancy he is. That's a nutty vet. <laughs> Probably also paid the... Oh, he, yeah, yes. Francois Antoine and Ricard got the reward. They got nice. all the money and like were high-fived. Like, Living it up. Like out of control high-fives. So broaching the subject of the beast returns was beyond sensitive. Because to imply that the king was mistaken about his certainty that the beast was the beast was, you know, very insulting. Don't insult the king. No, you don't. And so therefore, speculation put forward the idea that this was a second beast. The sequel. And we all know how sequels go. This is the live action version. Hmm. It's not a sequel. It's a reimagining. But really, does it need so much more violence? Now, during the first half... Of 1766, 22 people were attacked, and one boy that was taken was the younger brother of a boy who'd been injured the previous September. So now we've killed and maimed so many that we are actually getting repeat, unassociated attacks within families. Now the last half of the year did see a slower pace of attacks. There were only 11 deaths recorded, but records from the time show that an attack on Jean-Pierre Aurier, who was aged 12, was devoured by quote, la bête foros, which is eating everybody. Pretty much is. How are there any French villagers left? (laughs) They're very hardy, these French villagers. So from this attack on November 2nd until March 2nd the following year, we took a break. There were no more deaths? Until March 2nd. That's crazy. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. The beast has a cooling off period. (laughs) Kind of well organized for beast. But when he did return on March 2nd, there were 13 more deaths between 
March and the end of May, and there were probably around 30 attacks at this time. So what were the villagers going to do? They couldn't ask the king for help. Well, they began making pilgrimages and holding prayer meetings. Of course. The pilgrimage were made to sacred sites associated with the Virgin Mary in the vicinity. And this was been a very busy time of year for shepherds and farmers. And so the idea of them taking off to go on a religious pilgrimage is kind of a big deal, like an actual sacrifice. Inconvenient. But it kind of gives you an indication of like this growing sense of helplessness in the population. They're willing to do anything. Please, anything, yes. In June, there were a half dozen attacks and two more deaths. But after the death of a 19-year-old girl named Jean Bastille of Daguet, a 20-year-old nobleman, Marquis d'Apsure, decided to convene a posse of a dozen more men and set out in search of the beast. Do they sing too? Yes, they do. There's a beast running wild, there's no question. But I fear there's a monster in our midst. Sally forth, Sally ho, grab your sword and your bow. Praise the Lord and here we go. Kill the beast. Are you sure? Well, he said praise the Lord and here we go. Was it in the records? Yeah, in crayon. Oh. In the margins. Oh, okay, marginalia. And I may have written it there. Oh. What? So not by a monk. I'm a monk in a past life, I'm sure. Definitely a hermit. That's more likely. But Jean Chastal and three of his sons joined this hunting party. Under the light of a pallid half-moon, the group and their dogs hastened to the vicinity of the crime, searching the dense forest far into the night. Finally, the exasperated Marquis stopped his mount on the banks of a stream and dismounted, allowing his horse to drink. The elder Chastel followed suit. The beast has eluded us once more, the Marquis said in despair. Chastel looked up and... Above the trees, he studied the stars thoughtfully. Let's try those woods, Marquis. Perhaps we've driven him there. It was nearly four o'clock in the morning on June 19th when the 13 men arrived in the woods on the lower slopes of Mount Wachet. Among the silent, resin-scented pines, the wary hunters grouped, resuming their efforts in a rolling pre-dawn fog so dense that their dogs, scrutinizing it, growled from the deep within their throats, as if it was a living thing. On the minds was the ever-persistent question, would this day be the day? Jean Chostal moved away from the others, who were now crashing through the underbrush some distance from him, startling wildlife, searching for the enemy. Dawn had come and gone, and he had not yet paid his respects to Our Lady. He stopped at Son d'Auvers, placed his gun against a tree, and retrieved his spectacles and his prayer book from his pocket. The sun, still cloaked in misty gauze, shone down through the trees. Chastel prayed. The wind muttered along the pines. A twig snapped. Chastel calmly looked from his book. There, through the pines, was one of the Marquis' dogs coming toward him in hot pursuit of the beast. No. In a spirit of piety and confidence, Chastel finished his prayers and slipped his book and his spectacles into a waistcoat pocket. The monster turned to the dog's surprise and lunged at the canine, snapping savagely, biting its nose and face. The dog howled, blood running into its eyes. Chastel took up his gun. The beast proceeded on its course, moving fast, winding through the trees. Then it saw Chastel. It slid to a stop. Chastel did not move. Man and minutes faced one another. Chastel ticked off the characteristics of the beast. Immense size, odd coloring, blazing eyes. Like a wolf, and yet not a wolf. He fired, 
Bam! The shot echoed through the woods. It was good. The medals of Our Lady, the silver bullets, hit home. The shot severed the animal's trachea. The beast shudders, as if something possessed it. It stumbled, got up, stumbled again. Chastel waited as the chalky gun smoke clears. The beast fell. It did not get up again. Sides heaving, fighting for its breath, it focused on Chastel with a savage look, and then the hunter watched as the embers of its eyes faded and went out at last. Beast, said Chastel softly, thou wilt eat no more. So they killed the beast. Yes. Another one. Another one. <laughs> now, you can see that there is a document in the National Archives of France which does confirm Jean Chastel killed this beast and was paid a meager reward, 72 livres, Aww. for his troubles. And interestingly, on the day that they buried the last victim, the Bishop of Mond, who you will remember said this was a scourge from God sent down, yep, yep. Mm-hmm. he died. Interesting. 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 This beast was at least a man-eater. They did find human remains in its stomach. Hmm. Very interesting. And that is the story of how the Beast of Gévaudon was brought down by a pious man with blessed virgin medals alone in the woods without witnesses as he prayed. Just saying. But this is not the only beast that plagued the French countryside. Oh, no. The French countryside was covered in werewolves. It was like the Beast Ball. It was. There was a Lugaru Ball. It's a huge party. Everyone came. But there was a significant amount of werewolf activity in the 1500s in France and just continued to escalate to this time period with the beast. So there's a fantastic book you can read by Sabine Berengold, who's this kind of polyglot, like genius guy from everything I've read about him that would go and just study everything and read books about him from the 1800s. And so, like me, if I spoke more languages. Yes, yes. I had a powdered wig. Can I have a powdered wig? Is that an option? <laughs> Order it on Amazon. It'll be here in seven months with the dogs. I ordered some dogs. Oh, good. So, he wrote a the Book of Werewolves, where he went and dug through the archives mm-hmm. and found all of these werewolf trials. So, in December of 1521, two men were under accusation of witchcraft and cannibalism. Their names were Pierre Bourgeau and Michel Verdung. So Pierre had not been long under trial before he volunteered a full confession of his crimes. So he did not say more weight when pressed? <laughs> no. He said, 19 years before, on the occasion of a New Year's market, a terrible storm had scattered his flock. In vain, said the prisoner, did I labor in company with the other peasants to find the sheep and bring them together. I went everywhere in search of them. Then there rode up three black horsemen, and the last said to me, Whither away? You seem to be in trouble. I related to him my misfortune with my flock, and he bade me pluck up my spirits, and promised that his master would henceforth take charge of and protect my flock. If I would only rely upon him, he told me as well that I should find my strayed sheep very shortly, and he promised to provide me with money. At my second meeting, I learned of the stranger that he was a servant of the devil. I foreswore God and Our Lady and all the saints and dwellers in paradise. <laughs> I renounced Christianity, kissed his left hand, which was black and ice cold, so that of a corpse. And then I fell on my knees and gave in my allegiance to Satan. I remained in service of the devil for two years and never entered a church before the end of Mass. All anxiety about my flock was removed, for the devil had undertaken to protect it. 
and to keep off the wolves. Eternal damnation seems a high price to pay for scattered sheep. Well, I mean, if it's all you got. I guess. So he does agree with you. He starts going back to church. But Mikael Verdung comes and pulls him back to the dark side. Now he says, In a wood near chastel Chonon, we met with many others whom I did not recognize, and we danced, and each had in his or her hand a green taper with a blue flame. Oh my god. After I had stripped myself, he smeared me with a salve, and I believed myself then to be transformed into a wolf. I was at first somewhat horrified at my four wolf's feet and the fur with which I was covered all at once, but I found that I could now travel with the speed of the wind. I have three thoughts. Three? Yes. First, they lit the black flame candle. Yeah. So it makes Bette Medler appear. God willing. Two. This sounds like a precursor to a bathhouse. It's a witch's Sabbath. It's all dudes. They don't say that. It's all dudes. Okay. They only make him strip down and, and rub, rub like salve. body glitter on him. <laughs> so. Well, in the transcript, he is like, I'm not sure why I had to be naked. <laughs> I swear. Three. If they just had like an Iowa writer's workshop, I think like none of this would have happened because I feel like there were just some like creatively stunted monks. <laughs> or like magistrates that like wanted to express the sci-fi fantasy goodness and didn't have a proper outlet for it. So they were like, and then did you light a candle? Yeah. And it was green with a blue flame. Yeah. More weight. <laughs> Perfect. And then were you slightly horrified to see your wolf feet? Yes. <laughs> but then you liked running and felt the wind in your fur. Like the wind, yes, the wind. <laughs> oh, very good. It's a good confession. It's a real page turner. So him and Mikael one day tore to pieces a woman as she was gathering peas. On another occasion, they fell upon a little girl of four years old and ate her up. With the exception of one arm, Mikael of the flesh was most delicious. And another girl was strangled by them and her blood lapped up. Of a third, they ate merely a portion of the stomach. Now one evening at dusk, Pierre leaped over a garden wall and came upon a little maiden of nine years old, engaged upon the weeding of the garden beds. She fell on her knees and entreated Pierre to spare her, but he snapped the neck and left her corpse lying among her flowers. Oh, you French people. So these statements by Pierre were completely corroborated by Mikel, of course. Were these even crimes? Like, could they even find the people they were talking about? Like, were there reports that matched up? I mean, this is from the 1500s. Okay, fine. But, yeah, supposedly. Uh-huh. Supposedly. Mm, sure, there were. So they said at trial, like, did you find these victims? Sure, we did. And he agrees with everything? Sure, he does. Now, of course, another incident in 1573 in Dole in Franche-Comté, there was a hermit, the hermit of St. Bono, and he was accused of being a werewolf. It had all these deaths, children being torn apart. And so one day a man was returning home from work and through the forest heard the screams of a child and the deep baying of a wolf. He ran in the direction and found a little girl defending herself against a monstrous creature. As they came up, the creature fled on all fours into the gloom of the thicket and it was so dark that it could not be identified with certainty. While some affirmed that it was a wolf, others thought they recognized features of the hermit. So another another kid disappeared, so they decided to go grab the hermit, put him on trial, where he goes on to confess horrid, horrid 
things he has done to children. And so he was sentenced to be dragged to the place of public execution and there be burned alive. A sentence which was rigorously carried out. Poor hermits. So this is either either the the hermit that later will appear in Quebec. Could be. Or Albert Fish's grandfather. Most likely. Now on the 14th of December in 1598, a tailor of Chalon was sentenced to the flames by the Parliament of Paris for lycanthropy. The man had decoyed children into his shop or attacked them when they strayed into the woods and torn them with his teeth and killed them, after which he seems calmly to have dressed their flesh as ordinary meat and to have eaten it with a great relish. Does that mean like a sauce or like enjoyment? I think enjoyment. Eh. But he's French, so there's probably a sauce as well, if he was a good cook. Now the number of little innocents whom he destroyed is unknown, but a whole cask full of bones was discovered in his house. He sounds like he was just a serial killer. Like, he really does sound like Albert Fish. A lot of these do. So there's one more, the Gandalaw family, and this was recorded in 1603 in Bouget's Discourse on Sorceries. So Panette Gandalaw was a poor girl in the Zura who in 1598 ran about the country on all fours in the belief that she was a wolf. Now, in one of these fits, she came upon two children who were plucking wild strawberries. Filled with a sudden passion for blood, she flew at the little girl and would have brought her down had not her brother, a lad of four years old, defended her lustily with a knife. Okay, that's arming a very young child. And so Pernette was able to wrench the weapon from his tiny hand, flung him down, and gashed his throat so that he died of his wounds. Oh my god. So Prenet was found guilty and torn to pieces by the people in their rage and horror. Now her brother, Pierre, was also tried for witchcraft. He was charged with having led children to the Sabbath. The witch's Sabbath? Mm-hmm. Having made hail. Like weather hail? I assume. Okay. And having run about the country in the form of a wolf. He Which read- is definitely a crime. For sure. Well, he allowed that he had, during the period of his transformation, fallen on and devoured both beasts and human beings. Now, his sister, Antoinette, also confessed that she had made hail and that she'd sold herself to the devil, who appeared to her in the shape of a black he-goat. Black Philip. And well, that's legit. Yeah, I know. And she'd been to the Sabbath on several occasions. So all three of them were... Executed, I'm yes. sure. So these are children, though. Children. Young kids. God, all I can think about is the Macmillan preschool trials. It's hard not to think that, but there's always that possibility that one of these, some of these, maybe could be real. That maybe, you know, maybe it wasn't just, not that they were werewolves. I was just saying, yeah, really? Just, You're yeah, going I'm there? Doing, you, won't do, going there. you won't go there with me on ghosts, but you're going to take up werewolves? No, that they could have been killers. Sure, yeah. I, I My vote's number three. Which one? The cask of bones, dude. Like, that guy probably killed some kids. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I'm sure some of them were just wolf deaths, and they used that as an excuse, you know, just like in other witch trials. But you, you never know. You never know about these things. No, I know. Dude, number three was definitely a killer. So all that begs the question of, what the hell was the beast of Gavadon? Was it a a wolf, a man-eater, maybe? Was it a werewolf, a lugaru? I mean, I have theories. Was it a serial killer? There are about ten popular theories. Oh, that's it? Mm-hmm. 
Okay. The most obvious answer is wolves or wolf. Maybe. I buy it. Sure. But the pace? I mean, if it was multiple wolves, it would have to be multiple wolves. It would be a pack of man-eaters. Stranger things have happened. It, it could happen. It could happen. So I have no problem with wolves. Maybe. Possibly. The second one that you will see everywhere that everyone loves so dearly for whatever reason is a hyena. That's ridiculous. It is absolutely absurd. They aren't predator animals. Like, and everyone says it like, oh, see how practical I am? I don't think it's a werewolf. I think it was a hyena because that's an animal that exists in the world. But I say to them, no way in hell a hyena could survive a gave-a-don't winner, yeah, let alone well, four let the of out. them. No way. Also, they are scavengers. Yeah, I think that's unlikely. Unlikely. Sure, they were transported back and forth for menageries and things, but like... I think one of the descriptions had it with like a kind of bristly hair on its a back. A black dorsal. Yeah, which... Would work with a hyena. Jackals have yeah. and hyenas have, so... Maybe, but no, I don't think it's a hyena. Unlikely. Nah. Bear. Okay. I think people would know what a bear looks like. Very active bear. Long tail that could be grabbed and pulled also. Uh, yeah, no long tail. No long tail. Okay. Primate of some kind. Bigfoot. Basically, they're like, maybe French Bigfoot? And I'm like, Meh. no. Yes, Bigfoot. We're done. <laughs> no, but they do talk about a baboon. Okay, that could kill some people. Yeah, they're really angry. It was Baboons don't have long tails. Baboons don't have long tails. They have funny butts. You would see that butt. You'd remember it. Because it carried your baby away. Yeah, you would remember it. A lion. No. Next. Why not a lion? You would know what a lion looks like. Would you? Not then. I guess you're right. But the tracks that were seen by Francois Antoine were said to be wolf tracks, which would mean they had claw marks. And he also would know what wolf tracks look like. Right. And he was like, they look like wolf tracks, which would mean that they had claws protruding and wolves and cat's claws go in their paws Mm -hmm. unless they're using them. Then my personal favorite, uh, a prehistoric animal, a Nessie situation. It's a Loch Ness monster. Yeah. But angry. Very Pissy Nessie. Which is funny. (laughs) Pessy Nessie. No. Maybe? I mean, no. I think that's ridiculous. I say no. A new species that came about for like that time and then went away. I've never been seen again. Also. Next. <laughs> no. Marquis de Sade? What? It's in a lot of lists. I'm not good. No. We're that's not doing that. Episode. We're not doing that. So do you have any obvious nah <laughs> options other than wolf or werewolf? Which is the obvious answer here. A werewolf is the answer. That's what we're leading up to. No, I... Like, what do I think in the realm of actual possibility? Like, discounting magic and pretending that's not a thing that exists in the world? That's so that I can do. get by? Yes. Yeah, okay. So, discounting magic, I like I like the idea that it's a wolf-dog hybrid. Okay, that's a possibility. Now, I, I, I like this because there were some giant dogs at the time. Big mastiff things. Yes, and there are a variety of them. There's even one that has stripes, which is something that's mentioned with the beasts, some. Mexican tiger cat. Yeah, clearly. But I like it because a dog would have been less afraid of people. Yes, that is a genetic trait. That is not something. That is a nature, not nurture thing Right, with it's dogs. bred into them over generations. Also, people think maybe it was an armored dog. So describe its odd look. Right, because what 
is most commonly put forward is like the kind of armor that would have been on the dog is a boar skin. They would use a boar skin for fighting dogs in battle. But then that would have to be owned by somebody. Right. And that's the kind of the rest of the theory that we'll get to later. One thing that's always mentioned is it's snouts too short. Because it's a werewolf. Right. No. Okay. Yeah. If it were mixed with the dog, it would account for that. And also it's color. So how's it usually described? I guess before I can say that this is credible or a more credible one, let's kind of go over the most consistent descriptions of the beast so that we can all agree on what's plausible and what's not. So the size of the beast. Chastel says that he thinks the beast is a... Donkey. Yes. It's a donkey size. Donkey size. Most other people describe it as being roughly the size of a yearling calf. And so, taking into account the species that were in the area at the time, we can estimate that the beast would have been between 45 and 60 inches from the withers, which is the shoulder region. So, that's a lot bigger than a wolf. Correct. It is. 60 inches, I will remind you all, is 5 feet. The size of a Frenchman. Roughly, yeah. Average wolf, for reference, is 32 inches from the withers. So, quite a deal bigger. We talked about its coat having kind of that bristly, boar-like... Fur. Dorsal. And also the dorsal. And he sometimes is described as having a little bit of a mane, but the color is usually described as reddish gray or the color of roasted coffee because French people are fun and like their metaphors. And sometimes people say it is striped. The tail is bushy and long. Its eyes are described as, quote, glowing coals. Well, of course. Because, of course, I mean, how are. else would you describe a beast? Sometimes it's stated that the beast is bipedal. Werewolf. <laughs> It walks on its hind legs, usually attacks on its hind legs, and also will wade through water on its hind legs. That's really odd. Yes. But all of this is like unreliable narrator. Yes. And the tracks are described as either wolf-like or irregular, but wolf-like. And they say maybe it was injured in a trap. Maybe, you know, like something about it's a little off, but it's mostly wolf-like. And the most common mode of attack is to come at its prey from behind and go for their face and neck, often coming up on its hind feet to do so. So that's wolf-like, to Not attack the, the face. Neck. Not the face. Now, the vocalizations were also pretty interesting. Uh, the wolf was said to cry out when struck. It'd say, mon Dieu. Yes, it would. And then it could also mimic a human in distress in order to lure its victims. Uh, of course. And it was said to hiss at cattle. Did not like cattle. It's odd, because usually a wolf will attack cattle. Yeah, over people. And sometimes its cries sounded very much like words. For example, one person said that they heard it say, not a bad leap for a man of 90. (laughs) Of course it did. (laughs) Had a few drinks at the pub, was walking home. And then a wolf said to me, it had some unwolfy habits, though. It was a very messy killer and attacked mostly women and children, which is fine. That's, That's consistent. That's yeah. usually what a man eater will do. But it also go after armed men on occasion when they weren't coming after it. That's more odd. That is more odd. And then it hunted during the day as well as at night. And most canids hunt at night. And it hunted alone, which is also unusual. Most beasts will hunt in packs. And if you're putting out the... Maybe it was a pack of wolves theory, which I'm fine with. I think that's probably what it was. But that really does raise the question, like, why were a group of wolves all hunting alone if they were existing in a pack of man-eaters? I don't know. It just seems like more than one would explain the clip, how fast it was going. Uh But then why are they 
always alone because one old man eater wolf normal normal i mean you know in i mean in the context of man eating wolves but a pack that would be doing it separately that is completely i mean odd. i feel like they'd have to be getting together with a map and going okay johnny tonight you're going to take this area over here okay they're like from chicago now yes <laughs> did you not know that Do they have tommy guns see I guess that's like the my reference for like how people plan things. <laughs> Old mom movies. Yeah. It's a scheme. So there were other anomalous behaviors like walking on its hind legs, wading through water on its hind legs, being seemingly impervious to bullets as mentioned previously, scales, or maybe the like boar armor or maybe magic. Who knows? That's a definitely magic. Now it was also seen Peering into the homes of victims, it would come up to the window and get up on its hind legs and look through the window. Yeah, that's weird. And it would often do this like during funeral preparations. Hmm. So it's a sadistic wolf that knows what funerals are. So these are things kind of pointing away from wolfing. From wolf. Yeah. It was also noted that several of the victims appeared to have been redressed because they had wounds on their body that did not correspond to any damage on their clothing. So it would seem that they were naked, but they had clothes on. So it sounds like someone like undressed them. Attacked them. And then either redressed them, or sometimes the clothes were just found nearby. Right, there were clothes found nearby that were not damaged. That's very odd. Which would require like thumbs. But in a few cases, the clothes were even found close to the victims, neatly folded. All right, that's weird. That makes me think it's a person. Or a person is involved. I think a person is involved. I mean, do we have any any people that could be? I mean, I know you said the the bishop died the day that the second beast was killed. So maybe possible suspect. I mean, of course, maybe the hunters. Right. But they came later. So that'd be odd. Okay, so the bishop theory. Let's take that one first. Some people think there was some big conspiracy in the church because, of course, they do. Of course. One thing that's pointed out is the abbess who is at that nunnery in Chalzay that was right. mm-hmm. near where the beast was killed was known to harbor fugitives like for, mm. for a fee. And so some people speculate that she like had some, some doings in this. Nefarious character. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, whatever. It's also noted that very few members of the clergy were attacked. Given the population size of this region, statistically, that like, seems weird. Yeah, it was like 20 or 30 being killed every month. Considering the high number of deaths and attacks, the fact that more clergy were not seriously injured or killed does seem anomalous. So some people speculate that the church was running like a you know sex ring out of a pizza shop or whatever. Of course, yeah. And definitely. this was their cover. I don't know. I mean, that it stopped when he died is very suspicious. That part is suspicious. Fair. Fair. Any other suspects? Well, the Shostells. Okay, I mean, I can see the obvious reason that he's the one that kills the second beast when no one else is around with those holy medals while he's praying. Right. Any other... Okay, so there is a lot of conjecture surrounding them. First of all, Jean Chastel was known to be a bit of a hellraiser pre-beast. and When he wasn't praying. Well, that came later. He had a conversion, smacked down on the road to Damascus and whatnot, and then lived out his life a very pious man. Now, his son, Antoine, so supposedly, Antoine had um, been shanghaied by pirates. Of course he was. Before being castrated. Aww. And then he was supposedly put to work as a menagerie keeper, 
Where he might have a hyena. In his back pocket. And then he worked for the Count Morgane, who was the first dude called in to hunt with the sun. True. Um, now he later returned to Gepardon and became a solitary forest warden living on Mount Mouchet with his dogs, which if you'll remember, Mount Mouchet is where Jean... Finally kills the beast. Right. And some people claim that he had wolves as companions. And interestingly, the Chastels were locked up for a moment during really? Francois Antoine's reign as beast catcher because some of the boys, Antoine and his brother, had run into one of the royal entourage. Uh-huh. And he was riding on horseback and he was like, is this passage safe on horseback? And sure. It wasn't. It was a bog. Oh. And he was thrown from his horse. Oh, sounds like he deserved to be thrown in prison. I know. Like, I have a hard time imagining this is a very nefarious affair. But they were locked up until Francois Antoine left the area on November 3rd. And during that time, there were only two attacks. So Interesting. Yeah, you know, the clip really did slow. Yeah, definitely. And there's also an account from a man named Begu, whose real name was Perrier. And in the pre-dawn light on a full moon near his home... In Severin, he came upon a man bathing in a river. The man was surprised, and he jumps out of the water. Did he ask him to rub some salve on him? (laughs) No, he transforms into a beast and chases him. Oh, God. And Padier locks himself in his house, and the next day is horrified and doesn't want to talk about it, but eventually admits that the man looked a lot like Antoine Chastel. Interesting. Okay, so we've heard Antoine kept dogs. Right. And his father, Jean, was known to have a massive red hound. Interesting. Because the beast is described as kind of red-haired. Mm-hmm. And I, when I hear the word hound, I think of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and his hound of Baskerville. And that is very reminiscent of another version of the werewolf legends that may have been the precursors to the wolf trials. Now, originally... There was more of a a meneur de lips, a master of wolves, than a lugaru. Wolf master. A wolf master or a wolf lord. That sounds like a fantastic name. So long ago, evil warlocks would turn themselves into wolves or dress as wolves to go to the witch's Sabbath. Of course. Mm-hmm. But then they lose their witchcraft connotations and become these kind of like benevolent earth spirits. You know, like as the druid idea kind of fades out of like a contemporary thing into like pastoral history and becomes more benign and innocent. The idea is, you know, shifts in popular consciousness and they become like the equivalent of a mother earth and father earth figure. Right. And sand in her Legence Rustique includes several accounts from at the time present day where these wolf lords with their arcane knowledge are still in existence. So what are they doing? Well, for one, in one account, an old forester is seen gesturing oddly near a crossroads. And the people observing him watch as 13 wolves appear and behave as dogs, listening to the rangers talk and allowing him to pet them. Then the wolves and the man vanished into the trees. And Sand says other acquaintances happened to be at the forest of Chauterreux. And they observed a pack of agitated wolves, like, hanging out and trying to, like, pawing at this dude's door. At this little woodcutter's cottage. And the woodsman finally gets up and like goes and opens the door and is like, what do you want, dog? <laughs> you know that routine. We do that with our dog. What do you want? And he comes out and talks to him. And he's like, oh, I'm fine. I'll be out later. 
yeah, I, gotta, I can't hang out right now. Mom said I'd finish my homework. Mm-hmm. And he speaks in an unfamiliar language. And then the, they look much more at ease and they leave seemingly having been reassured. Okay, okay. So wolf whispers. Interesting. In addition to the wolf whispering, there's also wolf charming, which is carried out much in the same way as one might charm, I don't know, rats. Wolf Pied Piper? Mm-hmm. In Morvan, there's a story that Sandra counts of a church in the Black Valley where the bell ringer was apparently given a set of musettes or small bagpipes. And he began playing an unearthly, and they began playing an unearthly tune by themselves in the middle of nowhere. Don't they always sound like mm-hmm. that? The bell ringer Julian was found there by his priest a day or two later, playing the devil's own music on the pipes and leading three hundred wolves behind him. So the priest convinces him to come home and come play God's music, come play in his church. How's that go? Well, even then, it's Satan's song. Even when he returns to the church, he made his bagpipes. And so, no matter what Julian tried to play. It was only ever Satan's song. So the priest lifted communion host and recited the words of consecration, and the bagpipes ruptured and <gasps> released the sound of the devil. Oh, no. Now, in the 1760s, people commonly believed that the notorious wolf lord was a sadistic nobleman outfitted in wolfskin who'd trained a dog or wolf to do his bidding and assist in attacks of solitary young shepherds and shepherdesses. Now, O'Donnell, who is someone who's written extensively about werewolves, speculates that this is a form of sham lycanthropy because it does not involve a traditional human-to-wolf transformation. But it is like a human interacting with a wolf to attack people. Right. And he says that he suspects the kind of people that would do this are either mentally deranged and really do think they're becoming a wolf and feel like they have to go eat people, like it's a compulsion. Like part of the wolf pack. Mm Mm-hmm. And then the second are people who are not mentally ill, but result to vulgar trickery using wolf legends and fears of werewolves to carry out and cover up murders and cannibalism. That's sounding pretty promising. Oh, yeah. As a theory. So do you think Antoine viewed himself as a wolf lord? I think he knew he could. You know, I think he knew it would scare the shit out of people. But he does have these dogs. And his dad has the red dog. So I like the idea of this wolf dog hybrid that would be trainable that would be unrecognizable that wouldn't be familiar that would still be kind of vicious and massive and there could be more than one of them it could have been a whole litter in theory right and they're brought up from puppies and trained to carry out their master's bidding now things that might support this idea that it's like an animal acting on command is the fact that it would retreat when it encountered trouble and just sit about 50 yards away kind of watch hmm. and then re-enter the conflict yeah yeah and then they would kill so much like it wasn't for hunger well yeah sometimes it would kill multiple times in a day and like leave whole bodies that's either a wolf that's out of its mind and then it it does this for four years yeah so it's a, a wolf that's out of its mind for four years and it's surviving for that long it's odd it'd be odd and so it doesn't seem like it's motivated by hunger, as you said, or like maybe it's just killing on command. Another thing is the distances between the attacks, which if you want to do the whole multiple wolf thing, that makes sense. But if you want to believe that it's one thing and that it would be weird for that many wolves to be eating people, some people speculate that maybe it was put in a cart and taken by a person from place to place. Yeah, and like yeah. they open the cage and it goes and kills somebody and they say back and kennel up and it goes back in. 
I think the strongest supporting evidence of that is that while he's in jail, the killings pretty much stop. Well, maybe there are two people killed by wolves. Maybe I mean, and it could be that there are wolves who are killing people, and he is using that to his advantage. It's a cover. Now, in the version of the story that I'm going to write as a screenplay for an Oscar-nominated movie in three years, wait for it, he is taken advantage of by a priest who wants this done, like the bishop, because the father is like a mess, a hot mess, cavorting, things of that nature. And he tells him, you know, in order to atone for your sins, you have to help me enact God's vengeance. I'm going to need a dog that'll eat people. And so then it's carried out in conspiracy with the church. And that's my favorite idea in a cinematic way. Not necessarily the most likely, but entertaining. So it could have just been an old-fashioned werewolf, too. Of course. Look at you. It's got to be. Um, there are a couple of stories from the time that do lend themselves to that. Uh, for example, there was the case in Pomperet, where three women were going to church near a wood in Favart when a dark man offered to escort them through the wood, and they refused. But before leaving, he touched one of them with a fur-covered hand. Oh, no. And then dragoons arrived on the scene and warned them not to go into the woods because the bet had just been seen there. Personally... Well, I know, intellectually, that it was probably just wolves in really weird circumstances. I am quite fond of my priest-pawn-dog theory. I mean, I think it's very possible that it could have been Antoine and a trained dog. You know, one he was using as a cover or to help kill people just for Run the people down joy or, or, Yeah. Yeah. You know, it comes to the point that dogs have a really weird place in our society. Yeah. You know, because they are, at one point, they are babies. Mm Mm-hmm. Before we have our own kids and then they become dogs. Yeah, which happen ours. But then they're also, they're scavengers. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and we've co-evolved with them. As we talked about in our dogs episode, they can tell our emotions. Mm Mm-hmm. But we also know that they could kill us in an instant. Ours couldn't. Not ours. <laughs> and so so dogs have always had this really just odd place. And, and one thing that has always reminded people that dogs are animals. You're going to upset some listeners by saying Prior that. to this last you know, century or so is that they could always be infected with rabies. So rabies is one of the most fatal viruses in the world. And it kills nearly 100% of its hosts in most species. And it works like no other virus. It travels through the nerves very slowly, very insidiously, two centimeters a day, all the way up to the brain. And then it slowly starts to work on the brain. So after one is bitten by a rabid animal, a dog, a wolf, bat, a bat, three weeks to three months later, so you could forget it happened almost. Yes. Uh. The wound will heal over. But as it's beginning to enter the brain, one starts to have this painful sensation at the bite site. Like a ghost. Sounds supernatural. It really does. Rabies freaks me out. So as it starts to take over the brain, you start to get some of those classic signs of hydrophobia. What is that? Fear of water? Yes. And it's very odd. You can go to hand someone with rabies a cup of water. Well, they do. And even if they're thirsty, even if they haven't drank anything, as they try to reach out for it, their arms will jerk and their whole body will convulse. Their diaphragm and throat will start to contract. Water, water everywhere. Not a drop to drink. That Mm -hmm. is 
horrifying. And don't, aren't you dehydrated and thirsty? Oh, yeah. So you want it. But you can't make yourself drink it. Yeah. So in this final phase, as you start to have this high fever, tears streaming from your eyes, spasming throat, dog-like cries of pain. Now, of course, we all know dogs will become violent, but people can too. They'll try to bite. Really? Become very aggressive. They'll also hallucinate. In one description from the mid-19th century, said the patient is seized with sudden terror. He turns abruptly around, fancying that somebody calls to him. Now it affects your limbic system, one of the reasons you're aggressive, but they're also hypersexual. Really? I didn't know that part of rabies. Mm -hmm. And men have involuntary erections and ejaculations up to 30 times in one day. I know. I was like, why are you including this? That's interesting, though. (laughs) Yeah, Galen, our old friend Galen, the Roman physician, Mm -hmm. reported an, an unfortunate porter who suffered from this for three days. And an 18th century Austrian doctor, Van Swieten, noted that semen et animal stimuli effivit, meaning his seed and his life were lost at the same time. An odd thing about rabies is, is that you have these periods of lucidity. So where This you, is just cruel. Where you acting rageful like an animal, like a beast. And then you're normal again. You transform back to yourself for a brief period of time. So rabies is transmitted through the bite of a rabbit animal. Or person. That is very unlikely to happen because of, per- because of our teeth. Because we have fangs. Yes. But as we're bitten, we begin to turn into the animal that has bitten us. us. And so people have proposed a lot of different you know, medical reasons or like ideas of what may have inspired you know, old folkloric traditions. We talked about some uh, on the vampire episode. Right, like I saw Porphyria mentioned yes. as a potential And that's very link. possible. To me, if there is, if it's not just purely kind of folkloric and mythologic like, wouldn't it be reason. cool to turn into a wolf? Yeah. No, it'd kind of suck. You know, like- the idea of rabies inspiring the idea of werewolves to me makes the most sense. Because we've actually known about rabies time memorial. Mm. And we've also, believe it or not, known that it was transmitted from an animal bite to humans. Which is a lot of science. I will just mention that we don't have a lot of were-raccoon stories. <laughs> now, it is a virus, and... It even has the old Greek name, the Lysovirus, meaning rage. So this like Lysa rage is a very specific type of rage. It's an animalistic. Berserker. Yeah. Berserker rage. Exactly. So it's not like being really angry that someone's wronged you. It's like behaving without reason at all. Like so we've known about this forever and it's affected our relationship with dogs for a very long time as well. In 2000 BCE... The laws of Ishnuna, which is a predecessor to the Code of Hammurabi. Wow, I didn't know the Code of Hammurabi had predecessors. Yeah, it outlined a punishment for those with rabid dogs. If it bit a man and caused his death, the owner of the dog would have to pay 40 shekels of silver. In Assyria, lunar eclipses could portend a rabies outbreak among dogs. Hmm. There are Babylonian incantations against rabies, describing the rabid dog as having its, quote, semen carried in its mouth, and where it has bitten, it has left its child. That's weirdly poetic, in a very effective illusion. Now, while 
some ancient physicians were able to kind of put the disease and the symptoms together, such as in Ayurvedian text, the Greeks weren't too great at it. What did Pliny say? You want to know? I was joking. You want to know what Pliny has to say? Pliny, Pliny shows up. Pliny the younger ain't do nothing. Like there had to be one for him to be the elder. He wasn't as prolific. (laughs) So Pliny the Elder says that you should insert in the wound ashes of hairs from the tail of the dog that inflicted the bite. Really? Hair of the dog that bit you? That's a hangover cure, Pliny. Go home, you're drunk. It's a possible origin for the term. I like it. Possible origin. Other options? For treatment of rabies. Yes. Maggot from a dead dog. The dog that bit you? Any dog. Okay. Linen cloth. Soaked with the menstrual blood of a dog. Tails sounding real good right now. Ta- <laughs> Tail hair. Now we talked about the hydrophobia. Mm-hmm. So Celsus, who wrote a Roman medical encyclopedia, recorded this treatment of hydrophobia. Throw the patient unawares into a water tank. Oh if he cannot swim, let him sink under and drink. Then lift him out. If he can swim, push him under at intervals <laughs> so that he drinks his fill of water even against his will, for so his thirst and dread of water are removed at the same time. Hmm. Hmm. I will say that the reason I do not think that the Beast of Gavidon was a rabid wolf is when, re- I mean, it, left, it lasted too long. Way too long. A wolf, even if it was biting other wolves, very unlikely for that to be the cause. Although that is a proposed theory. And also, like, the the wolf runs and gets in water to get away from things. Right. And that I just happen. don't think that would happen. Like, how intense is the hydrophobia? Extremely intense. As extreme as one could imagine. Well, at least in, like, canines and humans? Yes. So now, what did the peasants of France do whenever the hunters were not working? Oh, well, they went on pilgrimages and hosted prayer vigils and... Prayed and read Bibles. Yeah. Pray the rabies away. So in the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. and and in recent times, you could always pray to Saint Hubert. Hubert, you say? I do. Hubert Savage? Same name. Interesting. Isn't that a coincidence? It is. Or not. Maybe. So now he is the protector of hunters and healer of rabies sufferers. He did not do a good job. That 100% mortality rate is not very inspiring. So the legend goes that he was a 7th century nobleman in the Frankish kingdom. He was French. So he decided to spurn country life and go live in the woods among God's nature or something. And one good Friday, the young man is giving chase to a stag when the beast, the stag, Mm. rears around and a crucifix is hovering between its antlers. Bro, you gotta fix that. The stag tells him. Wait, why are there so many talking animals? Well, it'd be boring if there weren't. Unless thou turn to the Lord and, and leanst a holy life, thou shalt quickly go down into hell. So he bear bows and asks what the Lord's will is. It's to go to the local Bishop Lambert and mm-hmm. give himself to Christ. Now, a few things about this story. Stag, cross between his antlers. Sound familiar? Jägermeister. Yes. I'm familiar. This is where that this is where that comes from. Is the story Jägermeister comes the logo. from the logo? The logo, yeah. And so the myth is actually just lifted <laughs> completely from another mythical saint, Eustace, huh. who's very unlikely to have ever existed. 
But why does that matter? It I mean, matter. it doesn't matter. And he's from like I think the second century. He's okay. but he's Roman. And so like the stag, as we know from Harry Potter, is the symbol for um, for like a a savior. Sacrifice. Well, Harry Potter doesn't die. He's supposed to. I know. But the stag is very common. But remember, it's his dad. It's his parents. Still? Always. But right, so the stag represents sacrifice, Jesus. Mm-hmm. And later on in depictions, you have the man hunting as kind of the devil figure. Mm-hmm. Sees Snow White at all. <laughs> so St. Eustace isn't real as St. Hubert? Well, he is a real person. Well, that's a start. Yeah, so they, they are real people. The story is most likely an invented hagiography done by his peers after his death in 727. Hmm. And whenever they were going to beatify him, whenever they dug up his body... <gasps> Incorruptible saints. And it smelled like... Flowers. Of course. But he should have smelled like pine <laughs> or Irish spring. That's it. And so in 825, an abbey in Andage was granted the incorruptible saint and his holy effects, and they renamed the town Saint Hubert, mm-hmm. which is still Saint there. Hubert in Belgium. Let's go. And the right cult- after we're done yeah. in Northwest Pennsylvania. Yes. The cult grew as well as a hospice for sick pilgrims. Who had? I bet I know what they had. What? Rabies. Rabies, and they still have that pesky 100% mortality rate to deal with. But I bet they had ideas. Oh, they tried to treat it. I bet they got creative. Oh, yeah. So, La Tale, the holy rabies treatment. So, within the abbey is still a metal ring. Pilgrims would be bound to the ring, and the patient would be slashed across the forehead. Well, that's brutal. And, wait, the forehead? Yeah. Hmm. Anyone else you know that was slashed upon the forehead? Uber Savage. All right. And they would place a thread of the holy vestment of St. Hubert. In the wound? In the wound. And well, that's got to work. Yeah, it'd be bound for nine days where the pilgrim would stay in the abbey, pray, fast, and dress all in white. On the hmm. tenth day, the bandage was removed and burned. I have to say the holy rabies treatment sounds like something from Monty Python. <laughs> but this ritual sounds barbaric and... Like, it has enough pageantry that it probably worked. Who knows? Because it was hard to say, you know, if you were bit by a dog, if it was rabbit or not, and it would take a month or two or three to actually get rabies. So they weren't, like, foaming at the mouth when they went in. It was just people who had been bitten by dogs. Yeah. And they let them slash their foreheads open. Yeah. You want to know the last time they did this was? Oh, my God. Please tell me it was 1963. 1919. Oh, my God. I was joking. <laughs> Uh, so, oh, one more fun middle age fact. I love these. The French king had a great way to prevent rabies in his dogs. Annually, the king would bring his hounds to the church of saint monier le mont in order to, quote, have a mass sung in the presence of said hounds and to offer candles in their sight for fear of the malarage. The malady of the rage? Mm-hmm. Rabies. So he would have a mass sung to his hounds? Yeah. I'm sure they would sing along. <laughs> For some reason in my head, when, when you said that, the visual that popped up was the Queen music video for Bohemian Rhapsody, but with like bloodhounds <laughs> with the foreheads. I'm just a poor dog. Nobody loves me. Do you think they had to like 
Do you think the girl dogs had to cover their head when they went to church? I can only hope they had little bonnets on. Like the, like the sheep. Like the sheep. <laughs> so, you know, you see this progressive, like, hysteria with the wolf There's, trials. Insane. There's nothing progressive about dog church. <laughs> yes, it is. Okay. It's amazing. We you do still have the blessing of the pets. Still do and, it. Yeah. Still do it. But as we get kind of into the modern era, rabies is still this kind of elusive sickness. But we still know it, it comes from dogs. That's about it. You cool. get bit by a dog, you might get rabies. Having dogs in Europe became more and more popular in the 1700s, 1800s. I actually found an article about the rise of dogs in court during the 18th century. And they had little pompoofs and dog houses and dog clothes. I mean, it was the purse dog era. Well, of course. Marie Antoinette had a pug. Well, and so that, it became popular and everybody had them. And so you would also get an increase in stray dogs. Mm-hmm. And with that fear of rabies and the increase of stray dogs, everybody was worried that they would get bit and die. Fair. And so this led to numerous canicides, as they were called. Is this like when they stoned dachshunds? Yes, kind of. They would send out posses of people, go and kill the dogs, all the stray dogs. An 1879 episode alone had a tally of 9,479. How many pets do you think were killed by accident? <laughs> it's like, keep your pets inside. Keep your pets inside. I'm sorry, he wasn't wearing a collar. A what? <laughs> I'm not wearing a corset. So, of course, science has to weigh in. And science says this is a curse from God because dogs are not meant to live in the house because they have fur and God meant for them to be outside. I think it's what your dad says. It is my But no, so before we get to real science, <laughs> they we have a little bit of spontaneous generation. So back in the day, people just thought infections just appeared. Well, I thought God sent them. Well, be- without God in the picture, they would just appear for funsies. And so this was a prevailing theory of infection prior to germ theory. Well, along with the bad air. People still knew that rabies came from dogs, but they thought it was spontaneously generated in them. There were many theories on why this may be the case. One of my favorites, Mm. lack of sexual gratification in the dogs. May I just say, on behalf of all of our listeners, what the hell would Freud have to say about that? I'm just like Victorians. You were like laying it on thick so in 1884 there was a proposal to create dog brothels to help prevent the spread of rabies stds yes rabies no uh did monsieur de Papou propose this i think it was his descendant i'm pretty sure i think it was someone with an excellent sense of humor <laughs> i have an idea shut up todd okay so important question did this happen no. I retract my question. I choose to believe it did. Yes, me too. Okay. I'm, still, I'm still visualizing it. There's like red lights and, you know, just like some just soft jazz playing in the background. A bra with like three rows of <laughs> cups. <laughs> Sexy lace collars. Leather collars. <laughs> That's a special dog brothel down the street. 
Okay, now that we've talked about that way too long, let's get back to science. Does it ever get there? Do we ever get there? We must because I don't have rabies. Do you mean like real science? I mean like, can we round up and call it real? Oh no, this is real science. Real science. For reals. You want some real science? Laid on me. It better be entertaining though because this has been fun. We're Louis Pasteur. Oh, real science. Do you know that guy? I know that guy. Do you know what pasteurization is? I do. It's where... Well, I learned. No, I didn't. I learned what homogenization was. I accidentally bought non-homogenized milk the other day. And refused to drink it. It was really upsetting to me. But what's pasteurization? Where you don't get sick. Yes, it's a method of, of heating like milk and things like that to where you, they kill all the bacteria. Uh-huh. And so Louis Pasteur invented that. But before he did that, he was a nine-year-old boy in France. When his village was attacked by a rabid wolf, killing animals and attacking humans. He even watched one day as one of the victims was taken to the blacksmith shop to have its wounds cauterized. <gasps> now, there were a total of eight human victims in this incident before the rabid beast was killed. Now, Pastor went on to be a great scientist. He saw himself as doing practical science to help the people. After working on spoilage of foods and also revolutionizing chemistry and crystallization, he went on to prove germ theory. It was a slow week. I don't know what you want to say. (laughs) He was a great self-promoter, and he would often defend his theories in person at the various French scientific academies, once even being challenged to a duel. Did he accept? His friends wouldn't let him. I'm sure he would have won. He tried. But he wanted to help people, but he especially wanted to help children. He was a family man. He lost three children to disease, two to typhoid. And he said, quote, When I see a child, he inspires me with two feelings, tenderness for what he is now and respect for what he may become hereafter. My God, I want that put up above the door of every school. After his third child died, he wrote, I am now wholly wrapped up in my studies which alone take my thoughts from my deep sorrow. I can also identify with that. Now, Edward Jenner, who's often credited with kind of inventing vaccines by inoculation. Now, he's a guy that kind of invented the smallpox vaccine. A lot of people know that story where he took cowpox pustules and got some of the pus off of that and gave people that, and then they developed an immunity to smallpox. Mm-hmm. It's the first smallpox vaccine. But he didn't know what the fuck he was doing. He was just experimenting, like in a very literal sense. Right. He saw that it worked, and so he did it. And he didn't know why it worked. I I think that's okay (laughs) if it worked. Well, yeah, but you need to know why. Eventually, yes, that will be helpful. So Pasteur was successful in producing vaccines against chicken cholera. I've never heard of it. And then anthrax. I've heard of that. Which caused lots of death in cattle and people. And what he did was he figured out a way to attenuate bacteria. What does that mean? It's like when you weaken it enough to where your body will still respond to it and develop an immune response, but it won't make you sick. That seems incredibly complicated. Like, that seems like... It is. It's why how a lot of vaccines, like the flu vaccine, is made today. Well, it seems like you'd need like computer modeling and shit. Like it does not seem like something you could do on the back of a napkin. Well, he had quite a lab, but he did it without computers. I promise you that. And so after these great successes, he was extremely well known throughout France, and the, the royal family loved him. And he decided he was going to take on rabies. That's a hell of a monster to fight. It is a monster. He's like a knight. 
He's like a science knight. He is. Isn't that awesome? Yes. And so he was not. So of course, rabies didn't kill that many people. If you got, if you got it, you died, but the frequency of getting it was really low. Uh huh. But how it was seen by the public was monstrous. I mean, like it was was, was the terrifying thing. It was was the, the great beast. Yeah. And so his collaborator said it was above all because the rabies virus has always been regarded as the most subtle and mysterious of all. And also because to everyone's mind, rabies is the most frightening and dreaded malady. Now, first he had to collect samples from the infected in order to try and isolate this germ that caused rabies. Mm -hmm. One of his first attempts, he was given a sample of saliva and secretions from a child that physicians told him had rabies. Now, he cultured the sperm, gave it to rabbits, and they died really quickly. Well, that's not right. right. That's exactly what he said. And he also said they're not rabid. They're not acting like rabid rabbits. Rabid rabbits? They're not acting like that. Who wants to make that cartoon? No rabid rabbits. They died of respiratory symptoms. So he accidentally discovered pneumonia, pneumococcus, <laughs> and the bacteria that causes many types of pneumonia in children. Whoops. Yeah, just on accident. Why did they think she had rabies? It's a that's a swing and a miss there, other yep. doctors. Now he did get rabid dogs from veterinarians that were studying the disease. Uh-huh. And his son in law recalled, We absolutely have to inoculate the rabbits with their saliva, said Pastor. The dog choking with rage, its eyes bloodshot and its body racked by furious spasms, was stretched out on the table while Pasteur, bending a finger's length away over their Raging head aspirated a few drops of saliva. It was at the sight of this awesome tete-a-tete that I saw Pastor at his greatest. So he could have gotten rabies like very easily if the dog bit him. Oh, while collecting samples from mad bulldogs, his assistants had a plan reported by one of their nieces. At the beginning of each session, a loaded revolver was placed within their reach. If a terrible accident were to happen to one of them, the more courageous of the two would put a bullet in the bitten man's head. It's like zombie apocalypse stuff. Like, this is very Walking Dead. Oh, it really is. And so we said that, you know, this is not a bacteria. It's a virus. So you can't see it under a light microscope. Uh And he used the term virus Uh to describe this pathological agent that he could not see on a microscope, but would still be present after he put it through a filter. So did he coin the term virus? It wasn't officially used at that time, but he did use it for this. What year is this? When is all this taking place? I turn of the last century. He has too much science for this. He's a time traveler. Like, this is not allowed. I've read a lot on this time. This is not allowed. Well, he is kind of the guy that, like I said, approved germ theory. Without germ theory, you don't have modern medicine. And so he is able after isolating it, to attenuate the virus. And I'll save you the gory details of how he has to do that. If you really want to know. Do you mean gory or do you mean like boring? I mean gory. What do you mean? Like lots of dead animals. and Oh. It's gory. It's gory. And it's not boring. It's gross. (laughs) We're going to have people tweeting us being like, tell the story. I'll find. I'll tell you. Now he developed this vaccine. He would use a very, very weak strain. And over time, there were two weeks, give a stronger and stronger version. Remember how slow the rabies yes. virus moves? Two centimeters a day. And so by giving, by directly giving you the virus that will not give you the disease, you're able to develop an immunity to it uh-huh. before it gets to your brain. 
This is a race. It's a race. I find this very epic and I'm troubled by it. Science is epic. No, it's not. Yes, it is. He proved that it worked on dogs, of course. And he was scared to death of using it on humans. Understandably. But he does. He has to. Of course. And so eventually, a tragic case comes to his attention. Joseph Meister, a nine-year-old boy. Now he was walking home one day when he was viciously attacked by a dog and suffered 14 wounds. After having his wound cauterized, the local doctor kind of mentioned to his mom about Louis Pasteur, this doctor that was working miracles in Paris. So they make a pilgrimage? There are different accounts. There are different accounts of what happens. But some say the mom wandered the streets asking for the genius scientist. I like that when I choose it. So does she does. She pilgrimages to Paris carrying her wounded son to try to cure the rabies that she knows he will get. So, like, they are very sure this dog has rabies. As sure as you can be okay. at the time. So after consulting with a pediatrician, Pastor was finally convinced to treat the boy. Now, at the time, the treatment was a 10-day course, Lincoln described. Now, the young boy kind of stayed with Pastor and happily played in the lab with the, I assume, non-rabbit animals. <laughs> um, but Pastor was so afraid it wouldn't work. His son-in-law said, cured from his wounds, delighted with all he saw, gaily running about, Little Meister, whose blue eyes now showed neither fear nor shyness, merrily received the last inoculation. In the evening, after claiming a kiss from dear Monsieur Pasteur, as he called him, he went to bed and slept peacefully. Pasteur spent a terrible night of insomnia. In those slow, dark hours of night when all vision is distorted, Pasteur, losing sight of the accumulation of experiments which guaranteed his success, imagined that the little boy would die. But he didn't. What? The vaccine worked. The first time you tried it on a human, it worked. The first real attempt. <laughs> That's crazy. So the vaccine worked. So the people traveled from around the world to receive this cure. It is eventually standardized and used around the world. Mm-hmm. The rabies vaccine we have now is uh, is different. But of course, without Pasteur, we would not have... The, the science to get there. Exactly. So Mr. Joseph Meister. That's the kid. He grew up. Good. And he became the concierge of the Institute. Of Louis Institute? Of the Pasteur Institute, which is still around today. Isn't that, that's, that was in our AIDS episode. Like, that's where they were doing a ton of research on AIDS. It was the place that cracked it, kind of. They are an amazing microbiological institute. Mm-hmm. Still. And within the Institute is Louis Pasteur's crypt. God, I love Europeans. Now, they get it, you know? As a semi-apocryphal story that I don't care if it's apocryphal, <laughs> the Nazis, whenever they took over Paris, came to visit Pasteur's crypt. Why? At the Institute. Because they're Nazis. I hate those guys. Now, now, Meister refused to unlock the gates for them. He would not let them desecrate dear Monsieur Pasteur's grave. I don't care either. Now, even as... You know, vaccines of dogs have led the infection rate to plummet. Uh There's not been a case of dog to human transmission in the United States in decades. Good. There's still that fear of rabid dogs. It stays in our consciousness. You see this in like Old Yeller. Mm -hmm. To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm -hmm. Cujo, which is in the book, a literal demon. But in the movie, it's just rabies. So you have this fear of what the virus can do. I mean, it can rob you of your humanity. It can turn you into an animal. It can transform you. 
to beast. So it seemed that we have sort of eradicated the cause of fears of werewolves. We've stopped living in such rural areas where wolf attacks are common. We've stopped believing that wolf attacks are a divine punishment. We've found a way to inoculate against rabies, which seems like a very good excuse for werewolves. Science. Progress. Yes. Are small steps in this human evolution, leaving behind this, this beast. But we started with a dog boy. Do you have another dog boy? Let's end with a dog boy. So this is the Arkansas dog boy. Now, he apparently was a resident of Quitman, Arkansas, and you may never have heard of it. I hadn't. But it was once a popular crossroads. It was halfway between Little Rock and Memphis. And the Bettis House, as it's known today, was built in 1890 by the Jackson family. Now, the wife of the family, Jenna, died when she was just 28. And son, Joseph, died in World War I at the age of 21. And both supposedly still haunt the house today. But in the 1950s, another family, the aforementioned Bettis of the Bettis house, bought it. Now, Floyd and Aline moved in the 1950s. They had been trying to have children for quite some time, but were childless until 1954, when Gerald Floyd Bettis was born. Now, reports say that Gerald was a very difficult child from early on. His parents were good people, but Gerald was a brat, vicious and cruel, Holabird says. Bettis also developed some unusual habits early on, including collecting cats and dogs, and this led to him acquiring his nickname, Dog Boy. Really? What would he do with the animals? Holabird, who's the informant on this particular story, says that he would torture them. We could hear them howl, she says. Now, people in the area claim that Gerald added on to the home so that he'd have more room for all his dog and cat prisoners. But then, from abusing animals, allegedly, his actions turned more sinister. He virtually kept his elderly parents imprisoned in the attic of the house. He would feed them, but only when he decided it was time for them to eat, Holabird says. And when he was an adult, he was six foot four and 300 pounds. It was alleged that he beat his elderly father nearly daily. And once, he threw him out an upstairs window. And though the man was in his 70s, he hung onto the ledge outside the window until the police showed up. Now, the official reports claim that Floyd died of an illness in 1981. But locals know, and I put that in quotes, that he was pushed down the stairs and died of a broken neck. Floyd's the father. Kennedy, another person who was interviewed about Gerald, says, I was afraid of him. If you had ever seen his eyes, they seemed to glow at night. One time he came over here and got onto us because we'd trimmed a magnolia tree that overlapped into his backyard. And when they started cleaning up that house... One of his uncles came to my house to borrow a gun because they were afraid Gerald would get all riled up. Wow. Holabird said that when she was working as a nurse years ago, she saw Gerald slap his mother and tell her that he would have her arrested if she ever told anyone about what he had done. But not long after that incident, Aline was placed in adult protective services and removed from his home permanently. He was later arrested for abusing his mother, and he died in prison in 1988 at the age of 34, supposedly from a drug overdose. And Helene died later in 1995. Now, eventually the house was sold to the Weaver family after passing through a few relatives, and they owned it for a long while. But Ed Munnerlin of Little Rock was hired to do some restorations around the property, and he said that he had eerie encounters at the Bettis house. And he says he prefers to work on the house at night, 
because too many people are curious about the ghost and want to come in. But he claims that in an extension of the house, he saw the ghost of Gerald Bettis looking at him several times. He said he was huge, a weird-looking cat, long brown hair and creepy eyes and big arms and hands. And he walked right in front of me and glared at me. Right after I saw him, he walked through the hall and disappeared. So I think this is especially interesting because it's an account of someone who resembles the animal that they were in life after their death. Yeah, he starts to take on and transform into the beast that he, that he acted like in life. And I think that this may, in some ways, be the next evolution of the way that we tell the werewolf story. Right, it's gone from being direct transformation by God. To divine punishment from God. To a man dressed as a wolf. To a man dressed in a wolf who turns into a wolf. <laughs> or even then down to our canine friends. Or the wolves that stalk around us. And the coyotes we hear at night. But in this way, we see that a person doesn't wear their barbaric other side in life. But it sort of stains their soul. And people perceive the memory, the ghost, looking the way it always seemed to them. People of this town saw this man who was cruel to his parents as an animal. A kid who picked up dogs and cats off the street just for the sole purpose of torturing them. He was, he was scary. And he may have looked like everybody else. And they knew that there was something different about him. Something a little bit scary. In the way that only the people of a southern town can agree about something like that without ever saying it out loud. But the memory of that fear and that lack of humanity in this tan- almost tangible, almost physical way sort of stains his memory. And even after death, he becomes the beast. Because that's what we're all afraid of, I guess. That humanity is fragile. That we could lose control. That we're one bite or full moon or bad day away from being a beast. And that's not just a story. It's not just a story. <laughs>